Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. And with me today, I have Robert Mitchell. Hello. Hi, how are you doing, everybody? <laughs> can you tell the audience... A little bit about sort of who you are, what you do. Yeah, as, as Sam said, I'm Robert Mitchell. I, I live in Germany and I am American. So I'm one of the people <laughs> that uh, has has embraced the grass is always greener on the other side mentality and moved from the U.S. to, to Europe. Well, many people want to move from Europe to the U.S. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm just in general. I think the reason that most of you guys know me is that I, I'm just a car guy. I, I love cars. I love everything automotive. It doesn't matter how big or small the motor is really or how many wheels it has. I'm after it. So I, I own and operate uh, the company Apex Nurburg, which offers uh, really the full Nurburgring experience from rental cars to taxis to instruction, hotel. Uh, and really, uh, one of our goals is just to bring a fun, exciting environment to the Nurburgring and help many of you guys share maybe what would you call your Nurburgring dream with us. So that's, that's really what I am in the car world. I've got several different supercars. Uh, some of them I love, some of them I hate. I have many different uh, <laughs> non-supercars. And yeah, I, 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 um, I have a very broad appreciation for anything automotive. It doesn't have to be, oh, if it's not a Ferrari, if it's not this or that. Um, I, I just love driving anything and I love really enjoying anything that has to do with automotive uh, excellence, I guess you could say. Nice. Well, before we get uh, to you telling me about which cars that you own that you hate, because that's, I mean, that's a very unusual <laughs> thing. Um, how did this all begin? Because I think I first came across Apex early days, but I feel like you've done some stuff before you got to Apex. Yeah, I mean, where where does it all start? You know, How did you get involved I've, in cars? Or when did you first, have you been a car guy since... I have been. I've, I've been. I've been a car guy since I was born. Really, you know, my, it all stems from my father, even my grandfather. Before that, obviously, that was before I was before I was yeah. born. My my family, many generations back, has been 
uh, into into different cars. We've got wonderful photos of my great grandparents in the in the 30s, uh, you know, with with old cars down at the beach and, you know, just cruising and, and doing all types of really neat things. And then, it, like I said, trans translated into my my grandfather from there getting into hot rods and then my father being into race boats when I was growing up. Um, amazing boats with, you know, beautiful blown thousand plus horsepower motors, uh, big blocks, big blocks and things like that. And that was really where I got into, you know, would you say that got it into my blood? Right. And so it stemmed from there. And, and one of the things that, that really got me on my own path was when I was young, I wanted to build uh, a roadster pickup. So like a 1929 Ford roadster pickup, I I was young. I, I wasn't even 16 at the time. So through the help of my father, we, we bought the chassis and, a, and a, a, a small block and different things like that. I never got the project completed just because of uh, distance issues, geographical issues. I wasn't able to work on it the way I should yeah. have been able to or wanted to. And, and I, I passed uh, passed that on. But that was really what got me into wanting my own project and something that started me down the path of researching everything that I wanted to do. And it formed for me in my life, a love of designing things and a love of creating a product from something that doesn't exist, or maybe taking a product and simply making it better. And this is one of the things that I alluded to earlier when I said, maybe I have some supercars I hate. I, I really probably don't hate them, but <laughs> they're just not right. You know, and this is this whole thing of starting out from, uh, you know, working on, on hot rods and, and seeing my father building them and customizing them to even a jet ski that I had, I was in the magazines looking at the different sponsons I could get. How could I upgrade the power? And, right, nice, you know, yeah. I, I was always modifying and trying to make stuff my own. And I'd, I'd say that's really where it started and it slowly evolved into Corvettes. I was really big into Corvettes for a while. I, I absolutely loved, uh, I had a, a C6, uh, I'm sorry, a, 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 I started with a C6 then I ended up with some C5 Corvettes, but I ended up tearing the motor apart myself, custom grinding cams. Obviously, I didn't grind it myself, but my own uh, camshaft grinds were intake and exhaust. And LSA was all to my spec so that uh, the motor would run exactly how I wanted it, getting the programming software to, to map my own car and make these big, nasty, lumpy Corvette cams actually operate where it would come down off of a rev and idle and run smooth and everything like that was a great feat that I did. Uh, in my younger 20s, I guess you, you could say as a, as a time frame. And it was it was a lot of fun. It was really exciting. I experimented with nitrous on it. I had a 300 <laughs> shot of nitrous that came in in multiple stages. So I was experimenting with wet systems where you have a separate tank of nitrous and or a separate tank of fuel. And then you have the nitrous that shoots in and they mix with their own separate yeah. fuel pump. I was using the mass airflow sensors to when you would spray the nitrous on the mass airflow sensor, it would actually freeze the airflow sensor. And then you would dump fuel based on that. <laughs> I was doing all kinds of neat stuff and just having fun with it no those were that would say those were my roots in this whole car uh, game was, if you would that's some i would say quite extensive tuning it was i mean we we didn't leave anything alone on the cars they were all our own custom built motors uh we had our own uh airflow on the heads um on the intake manifolds we were cutting them off we were taking the throttle bodies apart and polishing and grinding them to get the maximum airflow we weren't really leaving anything alone in the cars. It was it was definitely very uh, very extensive what we were doing with and them. And when you say we, was this as a company uh, at this point, or you I, I'm friends very, or what? Um, I'm very quick to say we always because I think there's <laughs> always a bigger group around you. When I talk about Apex, it's always we because I think that the you know maybe I maybe I came and said to Misha, uh, uh, you know, he helped me put everything together and, and found Apex from concepts and marketing and all these different things that we did together. But I always think that a lot of things have to do with we, you know, mm. if you're if you're doing it right and you're and you're incorporating the people that deserve the respect. So back in those days, 
uh, let's see with the Corvette stuff. Obviously, I went out and bought the car, and at the time, there was not a huge network of people that I would say we. Eventually, I made friends through it, and and my friends were egging me on, and you know, and 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 enjoying that. And then, obviously, I met certain tuners. One of the tuners that I met in in Florida, his name is Jeremy Fermato. It was also uh, he's now does a lot in YouTube and different things like that. But it was also when he was more unknown, and he was very talented and and building fast drag cars and things like that. And he flew out to California, stayed in my house a couple of days, showed me a thing or two, and we always stayed in contact. And then, yeah, I made friends who had Pontiac GTOs, the the, the GTO that was uh, like the Holden from, from Australia. And we did a lot of work on those. And it became a we thing because it was a lot of friends that came together. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it did. It turned into a shop. It turned into a place where a lot of people in the Bay Area, uh, Northern California, came and uh, came and had some fun with me. And, and it was a place where I learned a lot, good and bad. You know, I learned what to do, what not to do. And, <laughs> yeah. and uh, it was it was a great experience. It really was. So you really like cut your teeth on playing with cars at that point in time. Yeah, right? absolutely. I, I absolutely did. I, I really uh, made, I, I blew some motors up, you know, I, I, <laughs> I grenaded some engines, I, I made some mistakes. And that's really what taught me uh, so much about cars. Even, you know, today, uh, a mechanic will come to work for Apex and they'll talk to me and say, hey, you know a thing or two. I'm like, yeah, I, I know a thing or two. You know, I've, I've if, if it's on a car, I've broken it before. You know, there's no <laughs> doubt about it. And, and um you know, like I said, I was I was young twenties and had a brand new uh, C6 Corvette, and I first thing I did was ripped it apart on my garage floor. You know, so definitely had a lot of aptitude behind it. My uh, part of one of the things that we did as a family, my brother, uh, he was considerably younger than me, but he raced junior dragsters, and they're just small scale dragsters with uh, uh, you know that the, the young kids from eight years old up can actually race, and I acted as the crew chief on that, so. At that point, I was doing, uh, you know, a lot of tuning and, and uh, they were running on alcohol, you know, so it was alcohol uh, based <laughs> engines. And, you know, we were building c- centrifugal clutches and adjusting the weights to get the launch off the line just right. But also it would shift from the low gear to the high gear based on the weights that you put in the clutch. So there was a lot of really neat things that we were doing in those times. And that's really where I, I was building on that that concept and that idea of, uh, you know, everything automotive is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How quick is a junior dragster? I bet it's actually quite quick. <sighs> I, you're going to, you're going to laugh at me. Um, I've, it's been so many years that I would have no to look idea. up the numbers again, but I can tell you that the, the, the 60 foots and, and off the line and everything, they were, they were, when they, he started doing what's called three thirty racing. And the reason is they would standard, they would do an eighth mile and then they would just go from eighth mile down to 330 feet. And the reason they would do that is because the cars accelerated so fast that they couldn't allow kids to go that fast on the top yeah, end. Yeah. They, could, they, they were allowed to do those types of accelerations from down low, but they couldn't do it on the top end. And those cars were, were getting launches that were as fast, if not faster, than cars running in the eight, nine second quarter mile range. It's pretty quick for so an eight-year-old. Pretty, pretty damn fast. <laughs> At that point, they needed to be a little older. I can't remember what it was again. I think they needed to be 11 maybe to run that fast. But still, <laughs> it's pretty yeah. ridiculous. And I feel bad not remembering all of it, honestly. Um, I could find it out really quick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but at different ages, they had different brackets. You couldn't go faster than maybe a 12-second eighth mile. Uh, you couldn't go faster than a nine-second eighth mile, different things like that that they had as the kids got to certain ages. But they're definitely quick cars. There's no doubt about it. Mm. So during all this, um, you're building cars with mates and stuff like that. Are you at uni? Are you studying? No, this is actually some. This is actually something really interesting. Um, a lot of people, and and if you've been to college, which most people have, most people have been to university. Don't hate me for this, but 
Um, I think that we're in an era of society where so many people are pushed into university and so many people are told, this is what you're going to do. You deserve it. Every child deserves a, a university education. And I can tell you from my perspective, I absolutely hated school. I did not enjoy school. I did not like anything about it. I didn't like the time spent there. The best thing about school was skipping it and not being at it. And it doesn't mean that I didn't go. I just didn't enjoy it. I, I didn't. Um, sometimes the ideologies that the teachers were giving me or just the homework I didn't like it. When it came to math, math always came to me very quick and numbers always came to me very quick. And there were times I would get in trouble for not actually showing my work because I didn't do the work. I, I just could see something yeah, and I knew what it was. Whatever, yeah. And so I just skipped the steps and would write down the answer. And they said, well, how did you come to this conclusion? I said, because that's what it is. You know, it's, and so I had a hard time with a lot of that stuff and it really, I would say demoralized me and, and made it to where it was somewhere that I didn't want to be. So ultimately I would say I was probably going into the ninth, I was ninth or 10th grade and I knew I was not going to college. I didn't even pursue uh, uh, talking to colleges, looking mm. at colleges. Some of my friends were going on college, you know, university trips to go and see this university or that university. And I just, no, nah, I'm, I'm not going because I knew I wasn't going to go. So I, I was about 15 years old and I started working in my, in my grandfather's tool and die shop. We were working on CNC machines, uh, hand lathes, uh, CNC mills. Uh, some of them were computer programs, some weren't, uh, just depend on, on what it was. And that was where I really got uh, started working. Then on summer jobs, I worked in a shipping and receiving department for a company that makes fountain drink uh, dispensers and for bars and things like that. And I did, I worked in the shipping department, uh, shipping and receiving in the summer. And then by the time I graduated high school, uh, I was at that point, I turned 18 and in March I turned 18. And so I was, you know, three months later, I said, okay, I'm going to work. And I moved to California from Indiana, which that's a, a long story how I ended up in Indiana for a while. But I went back to California and I, I started working construction for my father. And that was really what allowed me to earn money to do the things that I wanted to do ultimately with cars. Yeah. Um, and, and that was really what got my base of saying, okay, at a young age, I was thrown into a very responsible position. It was sink or swim type of thing. And, and I'd like to think I swam, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think it, it obviously worked out quite well. And I yeah. learned a lot of things and uh, yeah, so no, I, I didn't go to university. Uh, it was something that I knew I wasn't going to do. And I'm very happy that I didn't waste my time there. I yeah. think some people need to go. So it's good for some people, but I think that young people out there also need to understand that it might not be right for you. And just because your friends are going doesn't mean you need to if it's not the right place for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what um, what sort of things were you doing then? Were you project managing builds? Of oh, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was or residential. Yeah, or? So so there was um, at the time there were different types of properties were being built, mostly residential uh, remodels, adding on to, to houses, building uh, houses that were, you know, between eight and maybe up to 20,000 square foot houses, really, really big, neat properties, uh, very custom stuff. No, no track operations or anything like that. It was all one off custom houses. And I started I went in and started and, and doing grunt work, carrying trash, carrying whatever and worked my way up, yeah, to project managing, to building uh, our own foundations, doing all of our framing, managing the teams that were doing the framing, building roofs, uh, installing all the finish work from doors to kitchens to baseboards. And uh, I learned how to wire an entire house. So I was actually our electrician. So nice. I was wiring. I was doing every uh, fuse panel wiring, uh, electrical outlets, everything. So yeah, it went from it went from A to Z. The only thing I really wasn't doing myself was drywall. But when you're doing construction, you learn how to do repairs and stuff too. So I was at the point where I was able, was building uh, or able to build an entire house uh, with the teams that we had, and and I knew how to do most of it myself. 
Do you think that was a, a really helpful sort of way of going through that, like learning everything? Oh, absolutely. I think, I think it is. I think that it's one of the best things that you can do, even if it's not something that you know you're going to do forever. You know, do I want to carry concrete or, or carry sheets of plywood, uh, you know, right now? No, I don't. But the fact that I did it, I know how hard of work it was. We were doing this in California and we had uh, very hot days, you know, very dry, hot summer days in California that, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, they were, they were working with me, but at the time I, I consider them friends and I still do to this day, but me and my colleague friends were seeing who could carry the most plywood up the hills the fastest, you know, and, and, and I think that that encouragement from them and, and that mentality, the, the things that I learned there from learning how to carry the trash to learning how to wire a house, to learning how to frame a house to put the roof on it, uh, to do the finish work. I think that was huge. And one of the best things that I learned, and I think this can be applied to anybody that does anything, learning how to finish, because a lot of people will come in and do a job when they're building a house. And my only job might've been to frame the house. Let's say yeah. I can leave and somebody else has to come in and finish what maybe I didn't do right. Yeah. Um, when you're framing a house in the States, it's all wood, right? And you have, you have to put drywall backing in places so that when you put your drywall up, it has somewhere to attach to. Well, if you're the framer and you leave and you forget one of them, somebody else is going to put it in when they're putting the drywall in and they, they cover your butt. Yeah. But when it's your job to build it all the way through, as well as putting in the kitchen cabinets and putting in the doors, there's nobody there cleaning up your mistakes, but you, and this was something that, you know, that, that my father taught me, anybody can do all the jobs before. But the, once you learn how to do the entire process from A to Z, that's when you've made it. That's when you, that's when you have, have figured out what responsibility is. And that's when you figure out really how to do anything. Once you do that, once you figure out what it takes to actually finish a job, you can apply it to any part of your life. And mm -hmm. I think that's really the, the most important part about learning any process from A to Z. Yeah. So then, so you're working at this company doing mm -hmm. loads of construction and whatnot. Yep. And at, did that at some point you moved you moved over here. Was, yeah. So was there a decent time period in between? Obviously. I yeah. Extent. I mean, I was, I was doing construction for several years. Um, I would say I was doing that a good, uh, a good eight, eight, nine years is how long I was doing construction for. Yeah. And then you came to Germany. And then I came, then I came to Germany. Why did you come to Germany? I, you know, the answer to that. I don't know the answer. Uh, it's my hundred thousand subscriber uh, story <laughs> that I'm going to tell. <laughs> Sam asked me if, if I would do a, uh, when's the first time you messaged me asking if I would do a, a podcast with you? Time ago. A long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I said, I will. I said, but don't ask me why I came to Germany because I don't want to spoil it for all my, my loyal, uh, friends and fans on YouTube and tell them why I came to Germany before a hundred thousand subs. Right. How close are you? How close are you? I haven't checked in a while. Been do you know, I'm at, I'm at, I'm at 55,000 and it really comes down to me at this point. If we push and I make video regular videos and, and do stuff, we'll get about five to 8,000 a month is what we're doing. Um, and that's just making little videos where I sit in front of the camera and talk, you know, there's no yeah, yeah. high, high media content or, or anything like that. But so the reality is if I, I've taken about a two week break now, if I continue, we should have it by the end of the year. Let's just put it that way. Okay. Okay. So we'll skip that bit. So at some point in time, you moved from the States to Germany. Now you're yep. in Germany. Yep. You've moved for an unknown reason to be announced later. Yeah, for unknown, undisclosed reasons, I've moved yep. to Germany. Watch this space. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, so you, are you, what are you doing in Germany at this point then? 
Okay, so so in once arriving in Germany, um, I started uh, basically real estate investment business, mm. and it stemmed because I knew that you know obviously I was into houses and building houses, and in the states I was buying houses and and selling them, living in them for a little bit of time, and 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 um, mind you, that was all in the early two thousands, which was great for the housing market and everything yeah. like that. And so I knew that for me, I wanted to, um, I wanted to continue with something home related because it's, it's what I knew it was, it was something that, that I was drawn to. So we initially were looking just for a, a rental property, just something that we could buy to, to possibly rent out, you know, or, or maybe even move into uh, something like that. And, and with that, I started making relationships with banks and I started making relationships with just different people integrated in the real estate market here in Germany. And I ultimately saw a, a opening in the market for somebody that could help people purchase houses because Germany doesn't have a buyer's agent when you're going to buy a house. It's just one realtor who sits in the middle and talks to both people and doesn't really represent the buyer. And so I saw a space where I could come in and actually work and start helping people uh, purchase houses that wanted to purchase houses here in Germany. And that ultimately ended up being my company, Mitch Consulting, which um, uh, really has allowed a lot of things that you guys might see on social media today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, so what are you doing for other people are you, in, in terms well, of helping other people buy houses? Yeah, so let's say you want to come to Germany and buy a house. Yeah. Basically, what I'll do is I'll uh, show you, I'll show you the, the, the differences of buying a house in Germany, what the complexities okay. are. Well, I'll walk you through. I say why. I say I again. My my team. Yeah. Will. I've got I've got a, a large uh, a group of people doing this, and um, they'll basically take you through the process of buying the house, get you financing. So we have um, uh, banks that we're connected with, uh, really on an internal level, that our systems are essentially connected. That we uh, can issue uh, quotes on on loans, packages, and and really everything that you need to buy the house, taking you from the purchase process uh, all the way through to providing movers that can help you you move into the house uh mm. hand worker teams that can come in and do renovations and repairs during the time that you live in the house translation services because um, uh, 95% of our buyers don't speak german uh yeah. so we help them through the entire process of their home ownership and then once they leave we'll we'll do management for them property management we'll help them sell their houses later if they want to it's really an a to z service no, no non-stop uh from the day that you think about buying from the day that you think about buying the house all the way until the day that you eventually sell the house. Yeah. So you're maintaining that, the full job, like you did yeah, with it, the building houses end to it, end. Exactly. It's exactly that. And it's, and it's neat because uh, the reality is that when you're able to help a customer from A to Z and, you know, come full circle, we have houses that we've sold three and four times. Yeah. You know, the same house. And it just goes in a circle. And, and those people know that they're taken care of from A to Z. We watch those people make their money, meet their goals, and then we sell it to the next person. And we help them make their money and make yeah. their goals with the house. And that's really a cool thing to do. And when you do that, you don't need to have as much volume. So you're not worried about, uh, I sold a thousand houses this year. Yeah. You might be happy with a couple hundred, right? Because you're able to charge a reasonable amount of money to these people and take them full circle and, and not be just looking at volume, 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 but you can try and apply a quality to it and help a smaller core of people achieve more. And it really, it really helps out. It really comes full circle and it makes the, the situation less stressful for everybody involved. Yeah, I find so many, not so many, but lots of companies I deal with every now and then are really only interested in dealing with you for a tiny, tiny right. section Absolutely. of your journey on that piece, yep. whatever it is. And 
it's so annoying. And ultimately, <laughs> the ones that deliver, the people that can deliver on all ends and help you a little bit around either side of what they're doing are the people you come back to and deal with over and over again. 100%. And that, that's the idea behind it is that, you know, if you know, okay, this person knows my house, this person knows my, whatever the product is, this person knows my story and they know my situation, yep. they're going to look after it. And the same thing goes back on the other side. I'm also uh, responsible uh, as a company, as a team to look and say, look, if you financed your house with me five years ago and now you're leaving the country and you want that house rented out, well, that loan has my name on it, yep. right? I have an interest to make sure that your house is rented. I have an interest to make sure that it's successful as well. And so yeah, you're going to so be true. certain that the minute that something's not right, I'm going to feel like, oh my gosh, I've got to, I've got to make sure that, that, that this gets turned around because it does need to be, it does need to be successful, not only for you because it should be for you, but also because I've got a little bit on my back in this, in this regard, you know? Yeah. That, I, oh man, I wish there was a company. I wish I was, I'm renting at the moment. <laughs> And I, I wish I was renting with someone that had a bit of skin in the game because. Well, if you want to, if if you want to <laughs> skin in the game, that's a that's that's a line we don't use around here after the whole SSC thing. I'll tell you about that later. Okay. <laughs> um, no, but but uh, it, it is it's it's interesting because I, I hear this on a lot of markets. You know, I, I hear it in a lot of markets that that people wish that they had some a, a company that could take them, you know, the whole circle and mm. help them get into buying a house. And uh, you know, we have a lot of programs because I think that you say you're renting right now, I think that anybody who can buy a house needs to one way or the other. If you have the income to do it, you need to, you need to find a way. Uh, we're at a point where I love, I love meme culture. I love just human culture as a whole. And I love what's going on in the stock market lately with, you know, GameStop and AMC yeah. and all these guys. It's, it's fantastic. It's, it's just from a story perspective, just from a social aspect and everything like that. And uh, this comes back to the housing, trust me. But when I think about this, you're still buying a share of something that could be gone tomorrow. 100%. And, I, and I think that buying a house, you may not get these crazy, you know, three, four, five hundred thousand percent returns within a day or two, but you're also not going to lose everything in a day or two. You might come back yeah. to me and say, oh, yeah, well, look at 2007 housing crash. Yeah, but you know what? You still had a house. You did. It doesn't, whatever the value <laughs> was, you still had a house, you know, and, and we still have seven to 8 billion people in this world. And those seven to 8 billion people still need to live somewhere. So yeah. you have a tangible asset when it's all said and done. So I think that even if it's just the house you live in one rental property, I think that, um, housing is an investment that's really difficult to replace. And so even you, Sam, you should buy a house. I have a house. Sorry, okay, side good. note. <laughs> I thought you said I thought you said you were renting. I am renting. I, I'll, I'll give you a slightly expanded view. <laughs> I, I have a house. Good. I wanted to Check. move to a different place. Okay. Uh, the taxes involved in buying a house mean that renting. If I'm unless I'm going to buy a house and live there for ten years or something, without house prices going crazy, it doesn't make much sense for me to sell and buy another house. So I'm right. renting that for makes a sense. bit. That makes that makes sense. So I'm at in, least I'm, you're in the market, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm in there, but yeah, I'm not perfect. feeling too hopeful about it at the moment. But it's <laughs> what it is and all that stuff. Like you said, at the end of the day, you do need somewhere to live. So Right. Absolutely. So I think if you guys can, definitely look into buying a house. Make it, make it your goal. Um, it doesn't matter if you have to finance all of it. Just do it. Get in it. And instead of paying rent to somebody, uh, make, it, make it happen. I, I think it, it's something that will set a lot of people up for the future. A lot of people who retire are able to do it based on on um, 
you know, their, their position in, in the rental market and the real estate market. And I think it's definitely something we should all consider. Yeah. It's, I don't want this to turn into a real estate podcast, but let's don't. <laughs> let's start. Okay. We'll di- We'll diverge. We'll get back into cars. Right. Okay. So doing all of this stuff has allowed you to have some, some nice toys along the way. Yeah, I would say and, so. And at some point in time you discovered the Nürburgring. Yeah. So I was, um, my father-in-law was in town and I bought an Audi R8. I think it was a 2012 Audi R8 V10 plus. And, um, I went up to pick it up and I, I, it was in Krefeld is where I bought the car. And that's a town, not, I wouldn't say all the way in the North of Germany, but a good ways up. Mm. And I was on the way back and I saw, okay, we're going by Cologne. I see, you know, the Nürburgring's by Cologne. I should, we should swing by and check it out. So my father-in-law was, was with me. The car literally brand new, just picked it up. And, um, I said, what the hell, let's take it for a lap. And it, to this day, I have about 6,000 laps on the Nürburgring. It has never rained harder in my 6,000 laps <laughs> than it did on my first lap of the Nürburgring. <laughs> and, and your first lap was in a brand new supercar that you just bought. Yeah, manual V10, Audi R8 Plus, v, V10 Plus. And um, yeah, I went for it, you know. And, <laughs> and there, there were points that at that time, I didn't know the names of the turns, but I can tell you... Um, you know, coming up out of Moot Curva, and then you go to a turn card called Stylestrecker, you are full on the brakes. And I was in the wet, giving the brakes all they had, downshifting, hoping that there was any more out of the out of the transmission from the, you know, engine braking. And uh, we made it out alive. Um, and uh, it was a really fun lap. And it was a lap that, you know, I'll always remember. And and uh, my, my father-in-law, he'll definitely always remember it as well. He's been on many more laps of the Nurburgring with me since then, but um, I, I'm certain that he'll remember that. That we, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was my that was my first lap of the Nurburgring, and then as it went, I was buying different cars. Uh, you know, I got more into it when I had a. Well, I say more into it, but I, I was doing more laps when I had my 488 GTB, and then I got I had my 675 LT, and and that was a car that I bought specifically knowing I only wanted to lap it on the Nurburgring. I've since done a thousand laps in that car in the Nurburgring. So that's a, a pretty good number for any car. But, but yeah, so I did a thousand laps in that car. And over time, I just naturally got hooked. You know, mm-hmm. it was, it was at the point where we were driving in the Nurburgring and we had Maximus. He, he was young and, and we were driving two cars up sometimes. So I, I you know, if, if I broke one, I'd have another one or, um, <laughs> and, and it was, I, I, I felt bad because you know, there's only so much fun you can have as a family at the Nurburgring, but yeah. we're the type of family that we like to do everything together. We don't want to me go to the track for the weekend and, and my wife and stay home with the kids. That's something we just didn't want to do. So my wife very uh, kindly would join and, you know, hot days pushing a stroller around the car park yeah. and there was really nowhere to go. You know, it was the Nurburgring is not oriented around families or having stuff to do if you're not driving on the track. Mm. You know, maybe your husband or wife goes on the track and you're just kind of hanging out. So Ultimately, we thought that we would uh, build a house. And so we found a really cool property in Adenau, which there's a second exit on the track. We found a cool, very cool piece of land in a new built area there. And we were going to build a neat house. And I, I had a really cool house laid out where it had a lot of glass walls that looked into the garage, maybe too many. And uh, <laughs> so you could see the cars that were in the garage and yeah, everything. Yeah. And we wanted to build a pool and an uh, indoor enclosure for the pool so that, you know, I could just say, oh, I'm going to go do a couple laps and then five minutes to the entrance, go do some laps and come home. 
and uh yeah that was that was the plan that was that was what we were gonna do we were gonna we were gonna build a house there and yeah go enjoy the Nurburgring and of course my wife will be the first to tell you I can't go anywhere without thinking about work in one way or another um it's the type of person I've always been my mind doesn't uh sit still easily if I go on vacation um I'm looking at the real estate property there I'm looking at what houses are for sale there what rental prices are and doing, you know, just thinking yeah. about all that stuff. It doesn't matter where we go. If it's, uh, if it's Greece, Italy, uh, it really doesn't matter. And, um, so of course I'm looking around, uh, Nurburgring and, and meeting people over, over the years, meeting people and talking with people. And eventually it was just, uh, after talking with enough people, I said, you know, it would be cool to have some sort of business here. Right. And so I, I there was a, a property for sale in the middle of town and it had been for sale for a long time. Everyone was scared of it. It had asbestos roofs, asbestos paneling on the walls. It, it was a, it was a mess, but it was right in the middle of Nurburgring. And if you know the Nurburgring, you'll know that the Nurburgring goes around, and actually, the town of Nurburgring is inside of the racetrack. So the the track is completely circling it. So here's a house in the middle of the Nurburgring, essentially, and it's been for sale in a pretty premium location, just 800 meters from the entrance of the track, 800 meters to the entrance of the GP track. It is p- perfectly centered. Yeah. But nobody would touch it because it was a pile of crap. It was absolutely, it was wretched. And um, so I said, well, this is kind of my business. You know, I, <laughs> I, I buy houses, sell houses, rebuild houses. I've since gotten my contractor's license in Germany. I've got my real estate license in Germany. I've got my, uh, uh, all my licenses to, to be brokering loans and everything like that. So this was not, for me, a really intimidating thing. So I just bought it. And at the time that we bought it, we didn't know exactly what was going to be done with it. It was just, okay, this property needs to be purchased. I yeah. had different opportunities talking to different people. And those opportunities didn't pan out the way that I wanted to. I knew what we had. I knew the potential that we had. And so I said, okay, I'm not I'm not going to do this uh, in this manner. And I was just kind of sitting on the property for a little bit. As I mentioned a moment ago, I was constantly driving up with different cars and going to the Nürburgring. And one night, somehow I ended up with three cars there. I had the 675 LT, the 488 GTB. And then we had uh, another car, um, that, that my, my wife had driven up and I said, you know what? I just want to ride back home with my family. I don't want us to go back in separate cars and all this stuff. So I started looking around and I, I've met, uh, I contacted Misha and I, I said, Misha, you know, um, why don't I leave my cars with you for a while? Cause he was working at a place that had garage space and, and had the ability to store them. And so I did that. I left the cars at uh, at his uh, place where he was working, and that was how Misha and I met. And ultimately, one late night, I, I contacted Misha and said, "What are you doing? You know, I can I I, I don't think you're too happy with your job. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, why don't we do something? Um, I've got this property in the middle of town, and I think we should open up a uh, maybe a car rental and, and this and that and the other." I asked him, "What would you do exactly if you were to build?" a new attraction at the Nürburgring, a new, uh, a new environment, a new car rental. Yeah. And that was it. We started making those plans and, and that's how Apex was formed. And then the rest is history as such. No. The rest is history. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's so, all well-documented history on Misha's YouTube channel. It is. It is yeah. all there for people to watch from the beginning. I remember, yeah, it was early days of him running around with a hat on, calling himself yeah, Boosted yeah, Boris. Calling himself like Boris, yeah. In <laughs> fact, he's still Boris in my, in my cell phone. His contact in my phone is still <laughs> Boris, yep, yep. <laughs> um, so then, so you decide to set up a, a car rental Nürburgring business. Yeah, yeah. And, well, the, so that, what did you start off with, cars-wise? Yeah, I mean, the first, the first cars we started off with were, 
Well, this is actually kind of funny. I mean, because for me, this was always something that was supposed to be fun and enjoyable. Yeah. Um, it needed to be cars that we enjoyed and cars that we would have fun with and that we wanted to drive. Um, but at the beginning, when you're starting a car rental, it was important that we always did everything the right way or as close to it as we thought we could. And one of those big things was insurances. We had to get insurances for the rental cars. I, I can't just rent out a car with normal yeah. road insurance. It has to be registered and insured as a rental car. And so at the beginning, we were optimistically you know, saying, okay, we're going to have this car by this date, and we're going to have it insured by this date. And when you go to an insurance company and you say, I want to, I want to rent a car out on the Nürburgring, they're like, oh, yeah, we don't want anything to do with this, you know? And I was very fortunate to ultimately be able to leverage the relationships that I had with a lot of the real estate stuff, because as we're having our own investment properties and our own commercial buildings and different things like that, we're also bringing a ton of customers in who are buying houses and taking yeah. insurances from these companies. I was able to leverage those relationships and get rental cars registered on the Nürburgring from a German company and different things like that. But while that was processing, I didn't have it. We didn't have those insurances. So the first people were, okay, we're booking with you guys. We, we want a rental car. And um, I didn't have anything for them. So the, the thing is, though, is that with my business policies, I had uh, insurances that covered the Nürburgring for non-rental cars. So the first handful of customers came up to the Nürburgring. I'm like, here, here's the keys. Just take it. <laughs> <laughs> and this was a, a 60 horsepower, naturally aspirated Volkswagen up. Nice. Right? Nice. And, and nobody was complaining because it was free. I'm like, yeah. here's the deal. Tanks full. You've got your own lap ticket. You can yeah. drive my car. Nice. And just bring it, just bring the tank back full and I'm happy. And, and people are like, looking at me like, are you outside of your mind? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't have a, um, I don't have the insurances to let you rent it. So I'm just going to let you drive it, you know? And, <laughs> and, and so that was the first couple people. And those people have ended up being, you know, very good friends of Apex. And, and, um, one of the guys, his name is Mike. He even, he's still around. He does instructions for us, you know, and he comes every, every season and is working for us and doing instructions. And he was, he was actually the first person that I gave the keys to do that. Yeah. And he, he was a cool guy because, um, he, he just loved the Nürburgring. He was the type that, you know, even before Apex Hotel was open, he was like, Oh, I'm camping. I'm like, what do you mean you're camping? He's like, yeah, you know, me and my friends want to come. We need to, we need to stay here cheap. So we drive from Holland and we just find a place in the woods and we camp. And so he was the first one that I'm, you know, would, he'd come, I'd give him an apex t-shirt an apex jacket. Yeah. And he even was to the point where I don't know if he ever paid for a rental car, you know, cause <laughs> we kind of made that relationship that he comes to the Nürburgring and he gets a car, you know? Yeah. Nice. And, uh, so the funniest part was, I don't know if you're familiar with the sub seven up, that was Misha's uh, first daily driver. And it was a, 90 horsepower up that we modified and we took a Volkswagen up and probably spent twice as much as the car was worth on mods to it. We put a beautiful JRZ, uh, two or three way adjustable suspension in it. We, you know, put a cage in it. We put Recaro seats and did all kinds of engine mapping and everything. And, um, one day Mike came to the Nürburgring and, and said, okay, yeah, you can take the up out. No problem. And he was just laughing and, you know, he wasn't paying for anything. So he was just out having fun. And, uh, we get a call. Yeah. The up might've crashed. And we're like, what do you mean the up might have crashed? Like, yeah, I don't know. I just saw it stuck down by Bell FS or just sitting there not moving. I said, okay. Well, Mike was having so much fun and he was doing free laps. He just ran it out of fuel, you know? And so, <laughs> so he, was, he was doing free laps and just, just going for it. And uh, so we, we never let him live that down. But that was the, that, that's really what Apex was about was making relationships like this, you know, that you can, that you can have fun with people and, that people see that you're actually having fun and they know we want to go there because this truly is an enjoyable experience for people. 
This is somewhere that I want to go have fun. I want to go share laughs with these guys. I want to go run their car out of fuel and they're going to make fun of me for the next 10 years. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that really was when me, Misha and I first spoke about it. That was what it needed to be. So the first rental car wasn't even a rental car. It was just a giveaway. It was a, 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 a Volkswagen up. We then went to a Toyota GT86, which we still have. We've modified that car immensely. It's one of my favorite cars to drive on the Nürburgring. We uh, ended up with a BMW M2 that same year. We ended up with Volkswagen. We ended up with a Volkswagen Polo, um, and unfortunately, that was crashed. It was a brand new Volkswagen Polo. A guy ran it into the wall, and the way that it is, when he hit the wall, he hit the tire just perfectly that it actually pushed the drive shaft into the transmission, destroyed oh. the engine and the transmission because the drive shaft went in and just seized everything yeah. up. Um, so it was a a rather light damage that totaled a car, so that was unfortunate. That was our that was our first accident, I would say, from the rental car standpoint. Um, but yeah, so we then evolved just through different BMWs from a, uh, uh, the M2, the M4, uh, Volkswagen Polo GTI, Golf GTI, uh, Seat Leon Cupra. Really cool car to drive on the Nurburgring. We had started with a 290, and then we ended up with a um, with a 300, so a little bit more power. Very fast cars. In fact, they're intimidatingly quick. For front-wheel drive cars, they just hook up and go, and you think, man, you really don't need this much power. And then we ultimately ended up with a Toyota Supra. Uh, we got a uh, Cayman, a Porsche Cayman GTS, which is probably one of the most balanced cars that you can drive and, and even rent from anybody on the Nürburgring. Very exciting cars to drive. Um, and then we just got the GR Yaris last year in December. Uh, we went and picked one of those up, and we put a thing out. On one of Misha's YouTube videos, we said, hey, we're thinking about buying a GR Yaris. Would you, would you guys want to rent one? I'm thinking about buying it next March. Yeah. And so many people were like, yeah, buy one, buy one, buy one. I said, okay, I'll buy one next March. And by the next weekend, I had one. So, um, <laughs> And this was when they were brand new and you couldn't find them, you know. And and uh, so, we, so we were able to go ahead and do that. So you're running all of these cars and you've started running cars from different manufacturers. What is it like? What's in terms of maintenance and stuff like that, running a car pretty much solely on the Nürburgring in terms of, cause you, were you getting these cars new or yeah, were you buying second yeah, most, hand or what? Most of the cars that we got were new. Um, especially at the beginning, the only cars that we ended up buying used along the way were I bought the M4 used. Mm. Um, and I'm really glad that I did just because those things depreciate like nobody's business. Yeah. Um, so we got the M4 used. But yeah, most of the other cars were new and it's on one side, it's good because you know that your history is, is all that it has. But at the same time, the, the question that you asked is what is it like running them this hard? It doesn't matter because what you do to your car for the first year on the roads in, in the UK or Germany yeah. or wherever you might live is absolutely nothing compared to what we're going to do to it. We're going to run these cars and, and, People are literally driving them over curbs on the racetrack, driving them through gravel. Um, you know, if you're driving fast, your car comes off the ground every lap at Flansgarden and lands again. You know, so if you had a little joyride and launched it over the railroad tracks one or two times, that's really not a big yeah, deal. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and so the maintenance on our cars is uh, there's a lot to it. We are constantly replacing the normal things, brake pads, brake discs, um, you know, tires, but we're replacing a lot of wheels. People people hit okay. a curb and bend a wheel. There's certain uh, bushings, and, and, and really bushings are a big one. Um, you know, people working the brakes and hitting the power in, in different places, and you're constantly moving the control arm. So we have a lot of bushings that we replace. But the one thing that's been very reliable has been the motors and transmissions on all the cars. It's been very, very good. The GT86 is hard on the synchro between third and fourth gear. 
for some reason, uh, it, it gets, it gets ground a lot. I think it's a nice, easy up and down. So people think they can do it fast, Yeah, but they think they think they can do it fast. <laughs> they, uh, their, their foot might be a little faster than their hand. So they're letting off the clutch too soon and grinding it into fourth gear. And, and that really has been a problem. And then the only other thing is the manual transmission cars. People have a tendency to miss a shift. So yeah. they might, they might think they're, I don't know, going from fifth to sixth and do the old fifth to fourth <laughs> type of thing, you know? And, uh, that's, that's definitely not, not so good, but for the most part, it's regular maintenance. It's just bushings, uh, tires, brakes, brake discs, brake pads, whatever, uh, a lot of fluids, a lot of oil changes, but we have really two full-time guys, uh, two and a half, I would say full-time guys that take care of these cars day in and day out year, year round. Mm. And then with the more expensive stuff, mm-hmm. so you've run Ferraris, McLarens, yeah. now a Porsche or Porsche, Porsches. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you run a Lambo? I've not. I always say that I don't have gold chain and enough chest hair. <laughs> Fair. Or you don't want a broken back. Um, that's the other one. <laughs> but no. So what are those, let's say those three. Yeah. Porsche, Ferrari, McLaren. Yes. What are they? Because my impression of, let's say, the McLarens, for example, I know you had a 675 and you've had some other cars. Mm-hmm. They're quite expensive to run as track cars on things they can like be, yeah. discs and stuff like that. Yeah, they, they absolutely can be. I mean, we could sit here and compare them all and it might, might be, might be fun, but I don't know if we have enough time. I mean, the, the reality is, is that I could give you the breakdown of just about every part on every car and how <laughs> they last. And, uh, from, uh, let's talk about, let's start at the front of the car, the splitters, right? Um, yeah. the, the Ferrari is, well, let's start at the worst, the 675 LT. It's this, um, carbon fiber splitter that just sticks out on the front of the car that's waiting to be destroyed. It doesn't matter if it's a parking block or uh, 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 hitting a curb on the track, yeah. and that's going to cost set you back 15,000 euro if you damage that. Um, then you go to the Ferrari, and the Ferrari, like the Pista, and, and really most of them have their splitter piece tucked under a little bit, and they have a little bit more forgiving parts out front that still might require paint, but maybe not a 15,000 euro yeah. um, um, carbon fiber part. And then you've got Porsche, right? You've got por- boring old Porsche sitting here with an eight or 900 euro piece of plastic out front that admittedly looks just fine, is e- easy to get at any Porsche dealer. And w- when you scrape it up, you just buy another one and you bolt it on. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it makes <laughs> yeah. sense. So, so I think that that's really something that you see along all of the brands is, is that Porsche is very oriented and making things accessible, easy to replace and functional but maybe with a little bit less flair. Right. Mm. And then you've got McLaren trying to be like the next tech company coming out with new stuff all the time, maybe not putting enough R and D into it, but catering to your tech side and your desire to have the newest, latest, greatest, neatest thing. And then you have Ferrari that's saying, Hey, our stuff might not perform the best, but it's the most exciting. You sit behind the steering wheel and you see that Ferrari, you look at it in your garage and you just love the lines. You love the character of it. And that's what I take from Ferrari. You know, but um, in terms of driving them on the track, the cost, I would say, to operate the McLarens is one of the highest, Ferrari being in the middle and the Porsche being the lowest in terms of operational cost. Yeah. And what are the, and, and the main things you're dealing with are the usual stuff like brake pads and this. Yeah. And so, 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 so Porsche has a very reasonable price on their brake pads. Um, you can buy your, your parts directly from Porsche at a fraction of the price, maybe 30 
30 to 40 percent of what you pay for uh, McLaren and Ferrari pads. Yeah. Um, the Ferrari pads last longer than the McLaren pads, so they're similar price, but they last longer. But the Porsche pads are the cheapest by far and last the longest by far. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's kind of this double package. On the other hand, though, the Porsche brake discs are the most expensive brake discs, but they last almost as twice as long as the others. So, whereas the Porsche brake discs, when I'm, I'm talking carbon ceramic, yeah, yeah. There's, it's still something that you're not that eager when you get the bill for, when you have to replace, you're not, you're not excited yeah. to, to fork out the money for those carbons. <laughs> That's not good. Don't do it. Um, I've avoided it as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it's a challenge, you know, so, but, but you find that balance and, and, if I'm going to compare them from a running cost standpoint, hands down, the um, the the Porsche is the cheapest to run, and it is. It's because bushings. I've not. I, you don't have to replace the bushings that often. Porsche says you need to do it every so many kilometers, and that's just to make sure that it's going to run and keep operating without any problems. McLaren, you don't change them optionally. You change them because they wore out. The, they, they they don't use a, a, a spherical bushing. They use a some sort of a poly bushing that ultimately wears out because you've got cars that have immense power and that control arm. The, it's the rear lower control arms are what are always getting you. And you give it gas and it pulls this way. You get on the brakes, it pushes it that way. And they're just constantly working back and yeah. forth. And we know how much power these McLarens make. They weigh way more than they're advertised. And that just takes its toll on them. So, and Ferrari's sitting there in the middle. You know, I've not had any any Ferrari bushings go out. And so that that's a huge savings. Ferrari has responded to customer, I would say, complaints or, or requests, and the price of their brake discs have come down considerably. Uh, I think that they don't want people going aftermarket. They want to still buy yeah. from them. And it's a very smart thing. If a manufacturer says, hey, wait a minute, all of my customers are going aftermarket because we're overpriced, we could drop our, drop our prices by 40%. We're probably still going to make a nice profit on them, but we're going to sell them. Yeah. Right. And that's something that Ferrari did, which is really interesting coming from Ferrari because you wouldn't think that they're always in this position to need to do that, right? Yeah, and they and they can be more expensive than everything else, but they yeah. just need to not be crazy. And then it doesn't you, need to be crazy. Like you said you'd buy them. Yeah. And so now, when you look at it, the Porsche brake disc prices are the crazy ones. McLaren's in second, and Ferrari's like, okay, after looking at the other two, I can deal with this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay, over the years, you've you've swapped in and out a few cars and whatnot mm -hmm. do you have some well what have you got what have you got at the moment okay so at the moment um i've got let's see where do i start i, I always i always look a lot at the apex cars as my cars even though yeah um so so though this is interesting for a lot of people every car at apex belongs to me um they're they're owned by me they're in my name and um they're registered by me and ultimately what i do is i rent them to apex and I, and that's the rental cars. That's the cars okay. that you yeah. guys can drive and, 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 and operate on. And that's really for liability reasons. It's to separate me and apex or the asset from the liability, which is yeah. you crashing and hurting somebody. Right. Um, so these are all my cars. And so sometimes I do have to differentiate what's my car versus what somebody else is like the 218i. Okay. Yeah. The BMW 218 is a car that nobody would really ever want, but we bought one. I bought one and, and everyone's Apex Robert, why in the hell did you buy a 218i? I'm like, yeah, just wait. I think it's going to be a cool car. And it's turned out to be a hit. It's turned out to be an absolute yeah. hit. But I don't consider it my car. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah I consider I it. I consider it a car that does a great job. It really suits a purpose, but I don't so much consider it my car. But the GT86, on the other hand, was a car that, you know, Misha put some ideas together of what we should build and how we should make it. And I love the car. 
I genuinely love it. If someone comes and crashes, I'm like, man, how bad is it? Don't tell me, you know? And yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm worried about it. And so I see that as a car that I would want to keep long term and something that's mine. But the reality is for this conversation, we should stop the my car conversation at the Porsche Cayman GTS. And we yeah. should say everything below that is Apex cars, rental cars, and everything from the Cayman GTS over, those are truly my cars. Those are the cars that if somebody asks me, can I drive? I'm sorry, that's not a rental car. That's yeah. my car, right? And and those truly are my cars. They don't earn any revenue for the company. Um, maybe I'll do taxi laps on them on a track day just because I love sharing the cars. Mm-hmm. But, they, but the money that we make from Apex in no way supports the purchase of those cars <laughs> yeah. and in no way supports a justification to have the car. Yeah. So they truly are seen as... Um, as as my cars amongst myself, the Apex team, etc. So where does that start? Um, we can go with uh, some of the BMW stuff. So I've got uh, a desire to build a collection, and I'm not a car collector, but a collection of cars that is every <laughs> BMW M3 from the E30 up to the F82, which I know is an M4, but we know yeah, it's yeah. an M3, right? Um, and so... In that in that grouping, I've got the F82 M4, which is uh, a wide-body carbon fiber-built uh, M4 by Team Shermer. It was a VLN race car, so an endurance racing race car. Also ran in the Nürburgring 24-hour race, and it is an amazing car. When you look underneath it, it is bulletproof, huge kinematics, huge differential, uh, drive shafts, braking systems. It's unbelievable the way the car is built. It's very solid, and it's very, very fast. It's a very quick car. But, of course, it's road legal because uh, Team Shermer is a, a manufacturer, so they were able to get everything road legal, and they did that for me when I bought the car so that I can drive it on the street as well. Um, take a step down from that. That goes to the F80 M3, which is the four-door, which is, uh, as far as I know right now, the only four-door uh, that's street legal with a full cage and four bucket seats. So we actually have four bucket seats with harnesses. We have a car seats front and rear with harnesses front and rear and a full cage around all of it. Um, and that's an amazing car. We built that as a taxi uh, to, to do Nürburgring taxi with. And um, something that a lot of people may not know is we're not going to continue doing taxi during tourist drives going forward. We're uh, only going to do them on track days. And all along, people said, when you're done doing taxi, what are you going to do with this car? I said, I want it to be a family car. I want to be able to maybe my kids <laughs> do their first laps with, yeah, yeah. with me and mom in the back seat or something like that. So... Uh, that's the the F80 M3 uh, is also in this category. Then we have the E92 M3. The the E92 is uh, dubbed XX31, or we sometimes joke XX31.2 because there's a sister car that were built identical at the same time. And this is one of the more remarkable cars at the Nurburgring. People know it, people remember it because it made a statement uh, in the 2012 to 14 range, maybe even 15, 16. It was the fastest E92 M3. Um, it was able to do a sub seven BTG bridge to gantry lap. And it was always out in TF pushing people out of the way. It was flying. It was <laughs> unbelievably quick. GT three RSs move over, you know, all this stuff. And it was, so it made a statement and really anybody that's big into the Nürburgring and tourist drives remembers this car and knows this car. And people love to come and see it just because of that. And when I take it out just for a fun lap, because I have so many cars that I don't get to drive them yeah, all yeah. as much as I'd like to. People say, Robert, I saw the E92 out today. It was so cool to see it, you know, and, and I, I get a bunch of messages and they really enjoy that. And I, I enjoy that, that people have good memories from it. You so know? was that your introduction to the Team Shermer and Shermer cars? That, that car, car was, yeah, that, that, that car was. That was a car that when I was 
I was working with a friend and we were going to build a, a F, um, what was it? An E90. So the four door version. Mm. And he said, yeah, you know, I, I, it'd be cool to build it like a Shermer, you know? And I was like, <laughs> okay, yeah, that's cool. And, and, and so, yeah, that car was really the introduction to it. And that was the first one that I bought. And that was made me appreciate That's what made me appreciate his product and, and the cars that he was building and the attention to detail that he brought to the table. And yeah, that, that's what really got me started down this. And that's what ultimately made me say that my M3 collection is not just going to be a bunch of M3s. It's actually going to be a Shermer M3 collection. So they're all to be built by Shermer. So I've named now three uh, you know, <laughs> cars that were built by Shermer. And those three cars are hands down. Um, if you look around uh, the M4, I don't think you'll find an M4 that is more crazily built you might find some guy that has a thousand horsepower turbo yeah. can, you know set up or but this car is complete it's a car that you can run in endurance racing it's a carbon fiber wide body it is it's truly built to function and it does that it functions you know and then and then you have the f80 m3 which again is full Shermer kinematics control arms everything engine systems exhaust systems transmission mapping um full suspension all the way around uh, all the way down to the wheels the arrow everything it's also built very aggressively. And then you do the four seat cage situation and there's not another one quite like it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you go down to the E92 and the E92 M3 as one of the most exciting cars to drive from a 110 liter fuel cell to a 4.4 liter stroker motor. Um, you know, full, obviously full cage, the car, uh, I could race it if I wanted to, because the way that it's built, it's got fire systems, it's got cutoff switches, has all of the latches for the, the, the bonnet, the hood, so it doesn't open, you know, you know, so you can open it and everything mm-hmm. like that. Um, and again, it's a very well-built car. Sure. Since then they've started making carbon fiber fenders that have these louvers and carbon fiber hoods that have louvers in them. And people are doing that to look more aggressive, but they're not, they're still not faster yet, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. and so, so this car is still, a, even, even almost 10 years later, it's still at the top of, you know, the, the list I get people that message me all the time. Robert, will you sell me that car? I had one this morning. A, a buddy of mine sent me a number and I said, what's that for? He goes, how much I'll pay you for the e do right now? <laughs> and I said, uh, I said, maybe I'll think about it, but this would be a hard one for me to sell. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then it goes down to the, um, and I'm going to forget a car just so that, you know, just so you, everybody knows I, I will forget something. It goes down to uh, we're building an E36 M3 GTR wide body again. So carbon fiber wide body on an E36. We're putting um, the S54 motor in it. We're putting a sequential gearbox with paddle shift, uh, actuated paddle shifts on the on the column. Um, we're doing all custom, you know, AIM dash and everything inside of it. And it's going to be a very spectacular car. It's it's a it's going to be a really neat car. So we've got that. The, so the only thing I don't have right now is an E40 an E46 of this M3 collection, and I'm working on that right now, deciding what way I want to go. <laughs> But I, I just bought an E30 M3. Yeah, so I saw a, that. It's a pretty cool car. It looks um, pretty cool. With that car, because it's in most, would you say the majority of your cars are bought mm-hmm. to drive on track slash yes, the Nürburgring. They are. And are modified or adjusted for that purpose. Right. Whereas your E36, 36, 36? The, the E36 is, but the E30 not. Yeah, the blue, E30 the new blue one. E30 yeah. is not going to be. Yeah. Right. So the E30 was one that I was really excited to build a cool track car. And I started looking in the garage and said, gosh, I've got so many track cars. I've got so many cars that I can drive and take out. I need something that I can go have a little bit of fun with. Right. I need something that I can um, that I can go out and and really enjoy 
with the family enjoy even still an Nurburgring laugh because that, that's going to happen right um yeah. i can i can enjoy just a, a lap with the family or or just a cruising lap and i can have a little bit of fun um and so my idea for the e30 went from this all-out track car caged you know amazing sounding race engine and all this to a very clean classic e30 that maybe had a few of my touches on it to make it very special and to me that on a nice day i could keep it at my house and on a nice day i could drive to the office yeah. uh on a, on a sunday i could say hey let's get in the car and we'll go for a half hour drive and just go have a little bit of fun with and that's what the e30 idea evolved with and i'm the type of person that i make up my mind and I, I i have to act i things don't sit well with me for you know do i have a plan for three years from now mm-hmm. no i don't because uh if i had a plan for three years from now i'd try and make it happen today <laughs> and so yeah. you know so so that was difficult for me so i said okay I was kind of frustrated with some cars and I was frustrated with just uh, the car market as a whole. I have to say I was kind of frustrated with, and I made an announcement on my YouTube channel. I said, guys, I'm announcing a project. I had a, a model car that Misha bought me for Christmas one year and it was an E30 M3. I said, I'm going to buy one of these. And I said, so, you know, I don't have a timeline probably this spring. I'm going to go ahead and buy it. And, um, I said, so if you know of one, send me a message, you know, let me know. I bought one about six days later. So it was, you know, people started messaging me. Then, of course, I got in the mode. I'm browsing through them all. And I found an bu- absolutely beautiful, clean Evo 2. Uh, so 1988 Evo 2. And it was in really good shape. And, you know, the numbers matched. We look at the transmission numbers. We look at the engine numbers. Everything matched. Uh, the only thing was they painted it blue back in, I think, 1991. Uh, they, they painted the car blue. And it was originally red. I said, okay, well, I can deal with this. I can get the car back. I want to do a bunch of work to it anyways. Maybe I'll, I'll paint it red. That was my big plan. And once I revealed it on the internet, everybody said, you've got to keep it blue. This, this thing looks so cool. If we see a red M3, we know that this is just one of how many red M3s. But if we see a blue one, we know this is Robert's M3. And so for me, I said, all right, well, I, one of my big things about my social media, about YouTube, about all the stuff that, that I do uh, even apex was that we need to include the audience. We need to include everybody who's involved in it. We need to include everybody who's talking and excited about these things. Why should I share my excitement for a car just for you guys to tell me how cool I am? You know, that's really not what this is about. This needs to be a, this needs to be an interaction type of thing. I don't want to be that guy that's very lucky to have so many cool cars and tell you from, from up here. I want us to meet, you know, I want us to meet here and talk about how cool these cars are and share this excitement together. And so I started listening to what everybody was saying about the blue. And I said, what the heck, if everybody thinks the car should stay blue, I don't, you know, I don't have social media just for me. You know, it's, it's yeah. something that, that I, I love engaging with people. I said, let's just keep it blue. So I said, we're going to keep it blue for one year. And uh, so it's, so for this season, it's going to stay blue. And I guess um, at the end of the year, we're going to decide if it stays blue or if I, if I, if I uh, go back to red, but I suspect it might stay blue even longer. We'll see. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, maybe you'll 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 fall in love with it or all the absolutely. I mean, the it reality is cool. you you go in the garage and you look at it. Pete just polished it. He did the full detail on it. The thing looks amazing. It really does look cool. It is a beautiful car, and the paint job for being over twenty years old, it really is in good shape. So I have to give I you know whoever did the the work back then credit. They they did a fantastic job with it. Yeah. So with all these cars, you've been adjusting them from day one you've yeah. been trying to make them fit you and right. your right. usage um have you had to do a lot to the supercars to make them better yeah i mean uh on track or whatever 
So that covered the, some of the BMWs that I have, mm. right? Um, the the supercars, uh, we could talk about the 488 Pista. I recently did sell the car, but it was a love-hate relationship with that car. It was a car that, you know, I placed the order on that years before it was even announced. We knew it was going to come, and I, I knew I wanted it. I had a Speciale. I loved it. And I said, I really want the Pista. And it was a car that I highly anticipated. I had a 488 GTB. There were a lot of things about the 488 GTB that I was not happy with. And that has a lot to do with shifting rev limiters and things like that, that I think mm-hmm. was done incorrectly from Ferrari and handled incorrectly. And it really disappointed me. And I was like, I really hope that these things don't exist on the Pista. Well, when the Pista came, there were other problems. It drove horrendously on the track. <laughs> it was, when I took the car out stock, it was the, probably one of the most disappointing experiences I've had taking one of my cars on the track for the first time. And I'm generally a positive person and enjoy everything I do. But I kind of came off the track like, what just happened? This was terrible, understeering, twitchy. It just did not feel good. And I made a huge mistake because I know that you need to align every car when you buy it and you're going to take it on the track. But I always will take it out like it is and just go have some fun with it. I had just recently had experiences with 600 LT that didn't need an alignment. Mm -hmm. The 600 LT came from the factory it worked. It was fun. It was engaging. It didn't have, I mean, it, it didn't have abnormal understeer for McLaren. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> it drove really well for what the package was. And yeah. I could live with it. I was like, wow, this is cool. And for our purpose of driving that car as a taxi, I didn't have to do anything. The Ferrari was so bad that my mind went away from, I need to align this to, wow, this is terrible. And I just stuck it back in the garage. Yeah. And I would take it out occasionally and drive it and be like, yep, still sucks. (laughs) And it got to the point where I was so annoyed with how it drove from the factory that it blinded me to the fact that I hadn't even set it up yet because it was just so baffling that it could come from the factory like this. And you think, how's an alignment going to fix this? And it was over a year later that coronavirus had settled in, you know, and everything. And I was staying at Apex uh, there and I said, you know what? I'm going to take this on the road, do some driving. I'm going to go get it aligned, see what it looks like. And by that point, I hadn't put a ton of miles on or a ton of kilometers on it. And we started working on it and it basically had no camber in it. The toe was messed up. It was just, it was like, it was like it came off the assembly line and they forgot to align it. They forgot to put anything where it should have been. Both sides matched, but it was yeah. It was like those tires were never going to wear out. You know what I mean? It was, it was, there was, <laughs> there was no camber, no toe. There was no, no friction being created by the front end. And sure enough, when you would turn, the tires would kind of go like this and it would just, you know, understeer. And so we fixed that and it, um, and it became actually a really fun car. And I was disappointed because I let it go for so long. But the problem is that when you have so many different cars, if something's not just right, you might put that to the side and focus on something that is better and something that you are having more fun with. And that I would say was the biggest demise of the Pista for me in my mind. Um, so ultimately we worked on the car and the Pista needed slight ride height adjustments. We just brought a little bit of rake into it and we adjusted the camber. We adjusted the toe angles and that made the car work a lot better. And so the reality is, is with the supercars, you don't, you shouldn't need to do as much, right? You're buying these cars because they're lightweight, because they're high powered. They have fantastic brakes on them. So you shouldn't need to do as much. So when I go and buy a new, um, let's say a new M3, I'm immediately knowing that I need to do brakes. I need to do brake lines. I probably need to change the discs and the pads. 
maybe I need to put new brake discs um, if, if uh, you know, I'm going to run it really hard. Or I mean, brake, brake calipers, I'm sorry if I'm going to run it really hard. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to possibly change out the bushings. I'm going to change out some of the kinematics, maybe, um, you know, a control arm or, or whatever the car may, may need, maybe a tie rod or something like that to prevent bump steer as the car settles down. Um, as the car settles down so the rear wheels don't move in and out. And these are all things that you absolutely should not have to do on a supercar. If you have to do these things on a supercar, <laughs> I think that they have built the car wrong and, and we shouldn't have had to buy it, right? Yeah. So I've been very fortunate to say that on the McLarens, on the um, the Ferraris, on even the Porsche, I mean, we're talking, we put an MR kit on it, but that's a whole nother story. They don't, you don't need to do any of that stuff. And, and so... Uh, buying these cars does give you the ability to take something turnkey right to the track and actually get a very high level of performance out of it. So the 675 LT, I, I haven't even done, I mean, other than, than brake pads, changing brake pads when they're due and changing brake discs when they're due, I don't think I have any modifications to my 675 LT other than alignment. And it's done over a thousand laps of the Nürburgring. Mm. Same with the 600 LT 720S. Uh, this is so same thing with the 720s. I've got two 675 LTs. I've got a spider and a coupe 620R. I have a 620R and that's uh that's actually a fun car, but that's one car that I, when, when I say I hate it, it's kind of a weird thing to say. I, I love the concept of the car, but I'm really frustrated with what McLaren did with it. They had the ability, they were, they were in a position where they're going to build a car that could have been one of the best cars that they've ever built but they stopped halfway. The 620R is marketed as a GT4 race car for the road, right? Yeah. And it and and it's not. It's not. It has a GT4 inspired suspension, okay? It has different valving, it has different springs. It doesn't have uniball bushings, so it has the same bushings that the road cars have that wear out. Um the S duct in the front just moves air through. It doesn't have radiator, so it overheats uh, when you're on a hot day on the track. It'll overheat just like the 675 yeah. will. Um, it has things like that where they almost had it. If they would have gotten rid of the trunk and actually put a radiator in the front, then we could have done lap after lap. If they would have gotten rid of the poly bushings and put an actual spherical bushing in, then we wouldn't get so much flex. They put the same spring I was, I was going through and saying, I want to change the spring rates. Oh no, the spring rates are good. I'm like, no, I, I don't feel that they are. To me, it feels like the 600 LT, the way that you come into the turn, it kind of skips a little. Like, oh yeah, we have the same springs as the 600 LT. And you start to go through it and think, well, this is, this is really a 570S with a wing on the back with an amazing motorsport suspension. Don't get me wrong. The suspension is great. And an S duct in the front there's not really enough other changes to say that it's a GT4 car. Yeah. And that was frustrating to me. So now what we're doing is we're going through, and I'm working on the rear sway bar. I'm going to change sway bars. Um, I'm working on different tire widths and different things like that. I'm changing the alignment completely to make it work for me because the car's over. The car has so much grip that it overwhelms these bushings, and you can actually feel it flex through the turns where it should have had a spherical, uh, spherical bushings, and it doesn't. So we're going to go through and make a spherical bushing kit to make it what it mm. should be, you know, and you might find this to be okay with a 720 or a, even a 675 because it is a road car. It still is a road car. But when you market something as a GT4 race car for the road, that's where you need to take it to the next level. And I don't care if I get bad vibrations when I'm on the road. 
because yeah. that's what it's made for. But you, uh, yeah, it's and I, I agree with you. I think you shouldn't say. Well, first of all, if a manufacturer or someone says this is a race car for the road, right. I know it's not. It never is. It's never going to be. It's never going to be close. And also, I would normally turn around and go, "Why would you ever want that?" Yeah, because like having driven race cars, you don't want to drive them on the road. That's not no, what they're made not. for. Um, so they market it as that. There'll be a whole bunch of people that will go. Oh, it set a whatever lap time, and yes. this is the most hardcore it. car of whatever. But actually, they want it to be comfy and exactly right. the same as their five seventy S or something like that. Absolutely. Um, so I was, it is a bit of a challenge there. Yeah, I was talking to a guy. Uh, have you come across Litchfield Motors in the UK? I've heard of them. Yeah, yeah, I've heard um, of them. And he's one of the things he's done with a couple of McLarens they've had in, um, other than doing more power, is they've put in a mechanical locking diff mm-hmm. in the in the mclarens and he said it made a big diff he said it made a huge difference but mainly i think in the when you've upgraded the power the power's gone right. up by another 150 I think, horsepower i think mclaren gets a lot of flack for their e-diff if you would mm. um you know the brake grabbing on the inside to help rotate the car and i don't think it's necessary to give them flack for that um, McLaren's not building a drag car. Obviously we see that the six, seven sixty five is very fast. A buddy of mine, Brooks just got his and went low nine quarter mile straight off the factory. But the McLaren, the, the, the whole idea with the E diff is driving the car on the track. And so many of us are used to driving different cars and, and driving cars with a mechanical diff and understanding that maybe we can turn in a little bit earlier rotate you know and rotate the car in a more normal fashion you you need to spend time with a mclaren to understand how the e-diff really does work and how you can have fun with it mclaren's build that build mclaren builds their cars ultimately with a decent amount of understeer i alluded to that earlier and if you go in and drive a mclaren like you would a porsche you just go straight through the turn you know and you, <laughs> and, and it's uh and it's as you're like oh my gosh this this thing has a ton of understeer what's going on but once you start to learn how to drive a McLaren, when you start eliminating the understeer, you do that by trail braking. So you come into the turn and you brake really late and you carry the brakes into the turn. And by shifting your weight to the front wheels, it ultimately lightens the back and lets the light the back rotate. Okay? That does two things. That rotates the car, which some people complain with the diff, a mechanical diff versus an e-diff, how that works. But it also stops understeer because you're loading your front tires more. So all of a sudden, when you start getting the diff to work the way that you want it to by trail braking, that inside wheel, the inside brake grabs, and that helps rotate the car, okay? Yep. And then you're loading the front because you're doing it so late, so you're eliminating the understeer. So the two things start working together when you drive a McLaren correctly. And you don't but, find you get a, a wheel spin, one wheel spinning up. No, it's, it's never, it's never an issue. So, so, so this is what's interesting is that if you're driving the car correctly, you don't even notice that it doesn't have a diff, a Mm. mechanical diff. You don't care. I've never once said, man, if only this car had a mechanical diff, you have to drive the car correctly though. You have to trail brake it and rotate on the brakes, but you need to do that anyways to stop the understeer. Right. And you can get on the power at any point. And the thing just, the, the McLaren's just hook and go. There's no mm. problem with, with, with power application. So I have not found where I feel that McLaren is missing a mechanical diff at all. I don't think it's something that, 
who would be on my list of complaints uh, for that car, I would have to say. <laughs> <laughs> so at some point in time, you started mm-hmm. running taxis. Yes. What what inspired you to try and well to try and do that and then put forward well, that program? Have you ever heard of an before before you know we were running taxis? Have you heard of an Nurburgring taxi before? Yes, you have. And I'm trying to I think would what say, it was. Maybe I would like say that just about. I would just have to say that just about everybody into cars, into performance that has heard of the Nurburgring has heard of a Nurburgring taxi. Yeah. Right. It's um, it's something that is very exciting. It's something that brings a lot of passion. You see the old M5s back in the day, you know, uh, drifting the track and people, you know, flying around because, you know, old seatbelts didn't really hold anybody in or anything like that. And it's, it's a level of excitement. It's a, it's, it's something that, that, you can truly share the Nurburgring with somebody through a taxi. You know, if you want to come drive, you get to drive it, you get to experience and you get to, you get to see how you can do it. But if you want to see how it can be done, if you want to truly see what the Nurburgring has to offer, you get in the passenger seat. And that was really what pushed me to want to do it was, um, you know, we had a great core group of, of followers and fans and friends or whatever you want to say and and I wanted to be able to take them for passenger rides. I wanted to be able to take them out and show them what the Nurburgring truly could be experienced like and have a license so that we could do that without being in trouble with the Nurburgring and everything like that. And then what? how do you pick the cars? Yeah, I mean, this is a tricky one because I said from day one, if I was smart, I'd just get a Porsche GT3 RS. <laughs> I would... Um, I would run it because what we spoke about earlier, reliability, cost yeah. of operation, et cetera. And I've, I've always been hard on Porsche because unless you're in a 918 or a Carrera GT or something like that, your, your GT3 RS looks just like a turbo, you know, with a little wing on it, which looks like a 4S with a smaller wing on it, you know? And, yep. and so they, they look the same. They, they all look the same. And that, that really bothered me because we're in a day and age where we're spending a lot of money on cars and they should be an expression of us. Right. And I saw Porsche as a safe man's bet. Right. I saw that as, as something that you buy because you know, um, I think I can say this quite openly that a Porsche does not have the front end feel and feedback of a McLaren. when you're coming into the turn and you turn in on a McLaren, you feel everything. I might joke that it has understeer, but you feel it. Um, you feel everything that the McLaren is doing, but you don't feel that with the Porsche. The Porsche is numb. Uh, a GT3 RS, even my GT2 RS, they don't feel the same. It doesn't give you that excitement. Now, if I fall, if, if, if someone of equal driving ability and I'm following them into the turn, well, the Porsche is gone. I know that the Porsche is faster, but I want that excitement. I want, I want, I want that passion. And I didn't want to just take somebody out in a car that I didn't have that same passion for that. I didn't have that same excitement for. So that was how we picked the cars. We said, what do I enjoy? I enjoy a Shermer M3. I love them. That's what I drive. Uh, you know, when I'm out yeah. having fun and I love a McLaren because that's the other thing I'm driving where I'm having fun. So the decision was made that it's going to be a Shermer M M car, uh, as our four seater taxi. And that's why we built the four seater the way I described earlier. And then it was going to be at that time a 720s because 720s we knew were delivering the power. They were the fastest things out there straight line and it brought the the idea of the mclaren that i enjoyed from the front end feel and the feedback and just bringing something that you really couldn't experience anywhere else yeah and 
if I was going to the Nurburgring and someone said, okay, you can go in a whatever, 720S or a GT3 RS, right. yeah, I'd be, I'm slightly biased towards Porsches, but there is a certain level of exotic that comes with a McLaren or whatever. Yeah, we always joke that the doors go up. You know, that's all you have to say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's weird, but it's weird, but it's got a, if, it, if it's got a horse on the side or or the doors go up, we'll get in it. You know. Yeah. And um, and and that that is that is interesting, but ultimately, you know, you probably are going to allude to this. Then, if that's the case, why did you end up with a GT two? Right. Ah, oh, that's a good um, question. <laughs> <laughs> you should have said, yeah, that's where I was going next. <laughs> um, but. You know, over the years, I, I always wanted to do exciting things, and and uh, we have very have always had a very good close relationship with Monte Racing, an absolutely fantastic group of guys, and their their passion for the Nurburgring is is and just really racing as a whole is is unbelievable. You know, and when you think of the Nurburgring, a lot of people do think Porsche because Porsche really runs a lot of marketing at the Nurburgring. They they are out doing lap records, they're out doing a lot of things. And so I've watched Manti Racing. We've been in there doing videos with them and all these things. And they come out, you know, with a Cup MR, which is basically their Porsche Cup car race car that they build. And, and Manti Racing takes it and modifies it into yeah. a Cup MR, you know. So they're doing really cool body kits and, you know, just beautiful work on those. And and I'm like, man, you know, I want this as a, you know, I'll take this as a taxi. You know, this this is something we could talk about. And, you know, over time, I'm like, okay, guys, if if you could build me the ultimate car, what would it be? And they're like, well, why don't you just buy a GT3 RS? I'm like, guys, come on. That's the most German thing you could have said to me, you know? Um, let's be exciting and, and daring and let's let's go have some fun. And they're like, yeah, but this car works. I said, you know what? You're, you're probably right. And, and and I should listen to you because you're, you're spot on. You know exactly well, th- this is the right answer, but it's not the answer that I want because I don't want to do what everybody else is doing. Apex doesn't want to do what everyone else is doing. We want to bring something exciting. They said, well... If that's the case, then the GT2 RSMR is the car for you, right? And this was at the point where they were doing developing and testing, and it wasn't really mainstream yet, you know? And so I said, okay, well, let's see what it does and when it's available, and we'll go from there. And so Manti Racing is doing all the testing. They go out and they set their uh, world or the, the Nürburgring record with um, 6 minutes and 40 seconds, 0. 0.3, uh, with large Cairn driving. And we said, okay, now we have a world or we have the, the world's fastest car on the Nürburgring, right? We have something that's modified with a big wing, wheels with these cool-looking wheel discs that people are like, what the hell is this? You know, uh, a couple little aero canards on the front. And this now all of a sudden doesn't look like your typical Porsche, uh, you know, GT2 or GT3 or 911, anything. This is starting to stand out. And, and I said, okay, this is something I can get behind. So from that point on, we kept in contact with Manti and I, you know, and stayed in contact. But because they're so close with Porsche related, they can't just put these parts out. They had to do a lot of R and D and testing and, uh, put so many miles on it, so many kilometers on it, make sure that everything was going to be good. And finally, when, when everything was released from them, their R and D Porsche signed off on it, everything happened. We got our car. And that was when I finally said, okay, we're going to, we're going to step over to Porsche. And now all of a sudden we're, we're running McLaren BMW M three as a, as the four seater and we're running the fastest car in the Nurburgring. And that was really exciting for a lot of people. We we could probably pull off, you know, in a day, 40 to maybe 50 laps. It, it really depends on traffic and yellow flags and if the track gets closed at any point. And that GT2, when it came out, was just booked solid. 
people could not get enough of it. They were like, I have to go in this. I have to go for a lap in it. And they loved it. It was really cool. Yeah. And and I, of all the cars, I would love to experience a lap in. Like, okay, this, that, this is probably actually a long list. But, but the <laughs> GT2 RS MR is, G, is, like, is, is well up there. Yeah. And I, unlike some other people, possibly, I like that car does the times it says that car um no if ends or buts about it does the time it says and that's what's really cool about it and that's one of the things that i really do respect about monty racing is they went out and they set a time and they did it and that's another thing that i enjoy when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST with amg with their gt black series they came out and ran a time and they were very transparent afterwards you know how trans uh, you know mm. about the time and w- they even gave us the alignment settings that the car required they told what tire it was on and they learn a thing or two you know uh, about a few things that happened the october before which was pretty cool yeah. and um you know they learned a thing or two and they really came out and uh showed what the amg gt black could do but yes the mr runs that time and you can see that the porsches run the times that they claim because the customers get to within a certain percentage of that time when they're doing their laps. So yeah. you can always see the cars that actually ran that time versus the cars that maybe didn't. Yeah. And you can drive, you, if you get in some of these other cars, you can, okay, there's a possibility that it's slightly possible or whatever, but right. just a short drive in some cars and you can go, yeah. You no, can you can no. feel it. Yeah, you can tell. No way. It's like, <laughs> it, was, it was like my Pista. I mean, when I got, I'm like, you know, seven minutes flat. I'll be lucky to go under eight, you know, (laughs) with how it was set up. I was like, oh my goodness, this is a mess, you know? So you definitely can tell relatively quickly if the manufacturer's claims are, are founded or not. And did that, so owning that car, the Mm -hmm. the GT2, has that shifted your perception of Porsche? No, it hasn't actually. I've always respected Porsche uh, in a very high regard. Mm. And I still do, but I still think that a lot of their cars are very safe. Um, we, we say that they're safe. I mean, look at a GT3 S. It's got a beautifully sounding six-cylinder motor that revs to 9,000 RPM. I, you know, that's not the, that's oh, maybe a little less, but still, it's not the safest thing in the world. It's exciting. But I still think that I would like a little bit more front-end uh, feeling out of it. I still think that when I buy a car, I want it to be me. I want it to you know, be a, an expression of me and, and yeah. maybe not look like every other person at the Nürburgring. Now, somebody that's not at the Nürburgring needs to maybe take some of my comments, not at too high of a value. And the reason is, is that I recently took my GT2 down to Italy 
and uh, we we enjoy the Cinque Terre uh, down there in Italy. And and I said, okay, I'm going to go down and I'm going to do a road trip with the GT2. And the same exact alignment that we have on the track when we're when we're running it on the track, I didn't change anything. I just put on a set of Pilot Sport 4S tires, which are the tires that we run on the GT2 in the rain. Yeah. And I drove it down there, 1,000 kilometers there, 1,000 kilometers back. And the minute that I got outside of the Nürburgring, outside of the Nürburgring area where you see race cars around and you see all this stuff around, all of a sudden the GT2 RS, gold stickers, big gold wheels with carbon disc on the back, a big old wing and these carbon or these uh, aero canards up on the front, all of a sudden it looked pretty exotic, right? <laughs> yeah. You had to get it out of the Nürburgring environment, and and all of a sudden people were looking at it and taking pictures on the autobahn, you know, and and kind of, you know, you got to see that this was a really interesting thing. I'll I'll shoot you over a couple pictures that we took in 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 Italy with the car, and you can see how out of place it was against <laughs> hundreds of year old multicolored buildings on the coast and yeah, things yeah. like that, you know, and and that 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 gave, that honestly, that gave me more of an appreciation for it than running it on the Nürburgring for two years. Yeah. And that's because I got it out of its environment where Porsche is so diluted. Yeah. It's like where, home for GT3, GT cars. It, it, it is. It's like I could I could throw a rock in the air and guarantee you it's going to land on a GT3 RS, you know? <laughs> yeah. And um, the, the, the funny story about that is that I caved. I said, okay, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for a GT3 RS. And, and a lot of people don't know that I had one for a season. And... Um, it was uh, my first lap I went out, and I went out for a lap with it. And I, I took a picture. I have it on my phone still because it was just so funny. And I, I did a lap. I did my first lap. And as I was coming off the track, I caught up to another yellow, same exact color, speed yellow, GT3 RS. <laughs> we were coming off the track together, you know, and I was like, see? Yeah. <laughs> this, this is what did my, my whole complaint okay. all along. And yeah. not only was it a GT3 RS, but it was the same color car, the yeah. same color wheels, you know, and... Uh, and I was like, Robert, is that you driving? You know, same guy. I don't know. But um, it was it was it was just funny to me that that was what I've been saying all along is that it just ends up being the same car again. Yeah. Whereas some people don't care. And I actually. In a way, envy those people that don't care because they're probably having less stressful fun. They're out in a reliable car. They're out in a car that they know can do lap after lap. They can go take it for service. They can go take it for warranty. And I'm sitting here changing bushings on my 675 LT, <laughs> ripping off 15,000 euro splitters. And they're not, you know, so who's the joke on, right? Yeah, uh, they, yeah, they, yeah. Their cars might all look the same, but they're, they've bought a tool, right? If you want a screwdriver, you're going to find the screwdriver that fits the, the, the screw the best you can to take it out. Yeah. And they have found that with the Porsche GT3 RS. And I just want one that has a little bit of flair to it. So my screwdriver always strips out and is broken. <laughs> yeah. Spins a couple of times in the hole and whatnot. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Have you driven any of the older RSs, like a 997? I haven't, actually. And, I, and it's something that I would be interested to do. And I, I think I would have a lot of fun with it. Um, okay. I, I haven't driven any of the older cars. I think they have a lot of emotion, you know, just from what I've seen and what I've experienced. Yeah, I think the but, steering is much nicer. Like I think in so. terms of like you can you get from the, what I that hear. granular feel. Mm-hmm. you also get in the McLarens now just from the electronic steering whatever no at some point in time I was planning on bringing my RS to the Nürburgring probably get a setup on it and do some laps or whatever so, I, I think but, you'd really enjoy it it brings a whole new level of appreciation to your car you know mm-hmm. it really it really is it's just a way to to enjoy our cars in a completely different manner that that's not normal and yeah. and honestly it's it's kind of spoiled me 
you know, it's gotten me to the point where I only want to drive my cars on the Nurburgring and that's, <laughs> uh, but everything comes full, full circle. That's, that's really why I ended up buying the, the E30 M3 and saying, I want to go with a more stock setup because, or, you know, a more road car setup because I want to start enjoying them on the road a little bit more. Mm. I think I'd, I've, I've been through a similar sort of like a circle of, I, I started off and I wanted as hardcore stuff as possible. And right. then, then I got into a bit of racing and drove actual race cars on track which kind of almost with my usage my track time it was then becoming more race car time that just completely removed any desire to drive any road car on track right pretty much apart from the odd day just to slide about and have a laugh and see some friends and, and stuff this is what happens is because as you're starting to get this track time and you're getting used to speed and you're getting used to this uh just all out i'm going for it you get on the road and you're like, well, this suspension is kind of hard. This isn't really relaxing. Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm going twice the speed limit, but it's actually really not fast compared to what this car can do. And you start to lose a little bit of it because the car can't, you can't legally do on the road what the car is capable of no. without being dangerous, without being irresponsible. And you, you find that your race cars are where you get your enjoyment, you know, and then you want something that's more casual and comfortable for the road. And yeah. that, that's, that's where I ended up. I think that that's literally where I'm going. Like I, I look at stuff and go, I would really love some, like, I, I don't want one, but like a, like a Bentley Continental GT, right. like the, exactly. I, that, the concept of that car, ideally one that weighed a ton less, but like the concept of that. Two tons less. Yeah. Maybe two tons <laughs> and it'd still be 500 kilos. <laughs> but that sort of thing, that's definitely where I'm sort of personally going. Oh, yeah. One of the things I want to talk about. High speed runs. Yes, I live near the Autobahn. <laughs> you live near the Autobahn. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, actually an expert in high speed runs. You know why? One of, I, I, I've only been making YouTube videos really for 10 or 11 months now. But one of my first YouTube videos was several years ago. And I, 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 I don't know if I had YouTube video before that, but I might have just been posting, like I don't know, like a 30 second clip or something. Yeah. But the 48 GTB was launched and Ferrari sent one up as a demo car uh, to Germany. And I, I got my hands on it. And well, first thing I did was I took it on the Autobahn and saw how fast <laughs> it would go. And this was like a pre-production car. This wasn't even a de dealer demo or anything. And I just pegged it on the Autobahn for, I mean, probably 20 kilometers flat out, yeah. just never lifted. And my passenger made a video. And we put it up on YouTube and it was one of my, it was my first video. It has over a million views now. Oh, wow. And um, <laughs> the funny thing about this is that if you go find that video and you look in the comment sections, people are counting how long it takes to get between light posts. They're counting okay. how the stripes on the road and, and looking at it now, years later, it's actually really funny that I was getting questioned. They're like, this video has been edited and you can see the speedometer and the camera's like shaking and the speedometer's going. You're like, that's quite the edit if you're if you're knocking that out. Yeah, and like, yeah. you know, everything's, you know, moving exactly the right paces. But they couldn't believe that I'm going, I don't know, 340 kilometers an hour, whatever it was. I don't remember how fast I even went, but that I'm going these speeds on the Autobahn and it doesn't look like I'm passing cars by that much. I'm like, yeah, hey, you have to understand this is the Autobahn. <laughs> those cars are probably doing 250 you know yeah 
<laughs> that minivan? Yeah, he was definitely doing 200. Like, no way. I'm like, yeah, they do it. I have a T6 van. I go everywhere, 220 kilometers an hour. It's what I do. You know? <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, people, there's a lot of comments. You'll read it that, oh, this was doctored. This is fake, fake, fake. And nice. looking I'll back have... on it now, we've had some really good laughs about that, you know, I'll this year. I'll have to go and have a yeah. look back. But yeah, yeah no, I said, what I want to touch on uh, to some a small extent, the whole SSC Tuatara world record run situation you were part of the part of the crew i would say that were yeah. asking some questions when the initial record yeah i'll, got I'll have to start w- with with something here is we, we were definitely part of the crew that brought it to the forefront and made the really good people behind the scenes that even brought it to, to tim's attention and brought it to our attention and gave us different ideas and maybe even did, you know, some of the work beforehand and, and side-by-side videos and things like that. And a lot of those people were from small groups, you know, small Facebook groups that are really into cars and, and, um, I would say stepped up and, and challenged what the regular media said was the fastest car ever built and probably would have ever been built. (laughs) The fastest production car ever. Yes. The fastest production car. Yeah. And yeah. So I had Ollie, on the podcast um it, i think the podcast came out today so this will be a couple of weeks ago now when this comes out and it, from just talking from his his side Perspective, and, yeah. and it was it was just seemed like a very it was just a very it was just a very weird thing to observe as a as a third party just watching i know tim super well he told me early on he was like just he even said he was like just watch the video that i made and I'm like, yeah, can you not just tell me? It's like, look, honestly, if you just watch you the video, it, yeah. it's yeah. like really short. I've made it as concise as possible. I won't be able to explain it any better, any quicker than just watch the video and then come back and we'll talk about it. And I watched the video and I I did math at sense, school huh? and yeah. I did engineering and I can put two things together and some basic <laughs> equations. And it just didn't, it just didn't, there were just things that didn't add up. No, it definitely didn't add up. And, and, you know, after reading this in different forums and getting people sending stuff to Tim and then Tim came and asked me and Misha about it and, and, and asked what we thought. And ultimately we, we knew immediately that this was not possible, you know, possible maybe, but not possible that this video depicts what was being claimed. And, and, um, yeah, so there was a lot of, a lot of nights spent calculating and <laughs> oh, a lot of good laughs, a lot of tired, you know, tired mornings and things like that. And, and, um, yeah, so we put it all together and yeah, went out on a limb and published it. And uh, I think it was pretty well accepted that, that we, we, we still get some hate, you know, today, uh, we get people that I get a message the other day with every profanity that you could imagine, you know, tell me Why? we were wrong. I'm like, ah. you know, people, people just want to believe what they see. Yeah. And they want to believe what they're told. And, and, um, you know, when a car comes back and then does 286, that's obviously clear evidence that it went 331. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but you know, some people just, just are, are at that point where they, where they have to come back with that. But, you know, but for the most part, everyone has said, okay, wow, we realized that this didn't happen. And I think that's going to change how a lot of people work. I think it's going to change how a lot of companies work. I already commented that Mercedes came out with their lap record of the Nürburgring after that. And they gave the most transparent Nurburgring lap record yeah. uh, press release that you have ever seen. 
and it was right on the heels of this whole thing uh, breaking out with the SSC uh, record run. So I would have to think that there was some kind of a marketing team that got behind it and said, hey, we should uh, we should maybe make sure we're transparent so yeah. that nobody asks any questions. You know? Let's go the extra mile. Yeah, absolutely. And they did. And absolutely. Like you can't nowadays, you can't just, I, I say get away. That's implying that everyone is trying to mm-hmm. fake it or whatever. But you can't just publish a video and then put some numbers on the video and no. expect everyone just to believe it. If if, the if it is, is what it is, then it's great. Yep. But yep. A, if it's not, you're probably going to get caught out by someone somewhere because people are bored. The, this, and you know what? It's not even just that the people are bored. The internet has all types of people in it, from complete idiots to the most brilliant people that you could imagine. And some of these very brilliant people are enthusiasts. Some of them mm. are fans of the of the company that you just beat. Some of them don't care. They just like calculating stuff and they like numbers and they want to see the truth out there. If you can publish a video to top gear and it gets six to 8 million views, that's six to 8 million people that probably a good handful of them aren't dumb enough just to believe it. Yeah. You know, and if you watched it and believed it, I'm sorry, I'm not really calling you dumb. It is a lot of people's job before it got to that point to verify it. It is a lot of people's responsibility to make sure that this really is a record and that didn't happen. And we've been groomed to, to a point to where we believe news media. We believe journalists. We believe what we read in magazines and we should, we should be able to. Yeah. So I should more say that a lot of us were trusting enough. A lot of people were trusting enough to believe it. And, but of that 8 million people, there was a good chunk of people that said, wait a minute, this isn't right. And they went to work and they started calculating and finding out that it truly wasn't. Yeah, totally. And it's it's not like you watch the video and you go, oh, wow, that seems really fast. And then, yeah. okay, then you start looking at into yep. various things. And there was a lot of analysis done by there a was. few people on, on various bits and pieces and whatever. And, and, and ultimately, they retracted their record. They're not retracted it. They didn't get it in the first place sort of thing. Yeah, they, 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 didn't, they didn't do a whole retraction. They said, we can't prove that it happened. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to rerun it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they re they have rerun it. You they were have there. Rerun it, yes. I was there. Yeah, professional I, analyst. I, spent, I, independent analyst, independent analyst, independent analyst. They, they first had key opinion leader on that. And I said, that sounds way too close <laughs> to influencers. So we're gonna have to change that. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I was there as an Mr. Independent analyst and, and I spent, I spent six days with them running. So they, they did two days in December and then four days in January. And I was there for all of those. And, uh, so I, I got to know the car very well. You know, uh, one thing that they said they would do would be to let us in being, uh, Tim, Misha and myself in and, and watch what was going on. And they, they did do that. So I, I, I can respect that, that wholeheartedly. And I saw everything. I saw things about the car, about what happened that I, I obviously can't repeat. I can't say, and, and, they trusted me enough to, to let me know these things and let me be a part of it. Little discussions and stuff like that. And I was poking my head in everywhere. You know, I was the fly on the wall. Honestly, you say, I wish I was the fly on the wall. I literally was the fly on the wall. I was, you know, jumping from computer screen to computer screen, looking over shoulder, you know, and, and, uh, I was under the car with my phone flashlight on and, 
reporting back to the driver what I saw, you know, in the engine bay, or I took pictures of the tires after every run just to see if I could see anything. You know, these are the things that are in the back of your mind. You're there as a guest, you know, almost yeah. a forced guest, if you would. Um, but you still feel some sort of responsibility for it because had we not, um, had we not made these claims and had we not pushed this out, they wouldn't have been there doing this. No. Right. And so all of a sudden the driver of the car says, Hey, I'm, or the owner of the car says, Hey, I'm going to drive it now. Then you all of a sudden feel like, my gosh, you know, had we not debunked this, even though you know, you're right. And even though you know you, what you said was right, you still made that call. And if something happens, you're going to feel bad about it. Yeah. 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 For sure. You know? Even if you know what you did was right. And even if you know that, that you set a record straight that needed to be set straight, the outcome of it, you're still going to feel responsible for. So I was between every run looking at everything I could to see if I saw anything out of the line. And since I do have such a, a automotive background, mm -hmm. I was able to, you know, feel like I was doing that confidently and, and giving feedback that was beneficial. So yeah, I was everywhere. I was upside down underneath the car, pulling cables off and, and it, it was, it was a good experience in that sense. And uh, I was uh, definitely proud of the SSC team for letting me in to see all of that. Yeah. And they, on a much shorter distance, on a runway yep. or whatever, they did a new world record. They did. Play. They went They went in one direction, 279 miles an hour, and the other direction they went 286. It averages out to uh, 282.9, uh, I think, with all the decimals in place is what their yeah. average two-way speed was, yeah. And that's, and, and that's sort of the end of it, although... Although there is a question that I've had since the beginning. Yeah. And is it's called the production car yep. record. Yes. And as far as I'm aware, it is not you can't legally drive that car on the road anywhere in the world. It's a challenge. Um it's it's called a production car. And and I had a, a similar question and I think there's two things that actually stand out here. When Koenigsegg did their record, right, they had 25 cars that they were producing, or by that point, I think, were almost done producing. Yeah. So you were pretty confident that they were going to meet their full production run. So Koenigsegg set a record and had, there's, it's a real gray area as to what is a production car, okay? Um, but they had met what most people would respect as a, a production car status, and they were done, they were finished. Now, when SSC ran the car, they were running car number one, and this car number one is the owner's car, and they have car two and three, I think, in the queue to be built, or they're working on them. Mm. We asked for a statement and said, what is your take on this being a production car? Is this car road legal? Okay. And the quote that we got back was something very close to the lines of, the car can be registered in 50 states. And it, we have a team that will assist every person buying to register it in their home country. So nobody who buys this car will not be able to register their car. Okay. okay. That was the story that I got. And as of today, that is still the story. And I have nothing to prove that that won't happen. Okay. On the internet, I'm getting a lot of heat because Tim and I, and when I say the internet, Koenigsegg groups, yeah, um, yeah. are giving me heat because I said this is a production car world record or congratulations for a production car world record, and, and they don't like that. 
And I can understand that. And, and one of the things that the, the, the things that I can say I can agree with, and, and in fact, I even brought this up was that at this moment, there's only one of these cars completed. That's yeah. going to be towards the production run for customers. So we do have to state that if SSC for some reason only builds 10 of these cars, it's not a production car. The, what do we define as an, as a number? That's the, that's the, I, I guess that's believe, the point. I believe somewhere around 25. And that's not just because that's what Koenigsegg built of the Gear RS. <laughs> that's because the FIA for a long time used 25 as okay, a yeah. production car number. Um, now there's all these different rules with homologation, 15,000, 25,000. How many M3s do you need? You know, E30 M3s, there's all these different numbers. But I think for this purpose, 25 would be a very good number to work with. And that is, like I said, it, it's based on an old FIA number um, for production cars for certain types of racing. And I think that's a reasonable number to work with. So if SSC doesn't meet that number, is it a production car? If SSC comes back and actually can't register their cars, is it a world record? Or is it a United States auto manufacturer record, right? A lot of people respect the McLaren F1 as being a record holder for top speed in its time, right? Yeah. The issue is that that car, you couldn't register in the United States. Okay, yeah. So we are all very quick to come after somebody today, but we all forget that the McLaren F1 wasn't 50 state road legal. Yeah, but that, we, that's a that's a valid point. Like, but and we give I've it, not necessarily looked at it like that. Yeah, but we give it we give it the status of being a world record holder, right? And so I've started asking the question: Is how do we validate this? How do we state what it is? And the reality is, is that we need some sort of a respected board or agency that is not the Guinness Book of World Records, right? The Guinness Book of World Records might say this is the longest podcast that's ever been made. Yeah, but they also then need to say be experts on the fastest car in the world and the fastest airplane in the world and the longest free dive or the deepest free dive in the world. They need to be experts on everything and nobody possibly can be right. So we, we almost need an agency that oversees these world records, administers them and watches them and sets what the standards are. So in these different groups, as you go, it's kind of funny. You can go with SSC fans and they set a certain standard, right? It's really lax. Um, then you have Koenigsegg fans and it's one step tighter. The Koenigsegg fans say, wait a minute, you know, these cars need to be homologated. I said, okay, well, what's homologated? Well, it needs to be, um, crash tested. Okay. It needs this, it needs that. And it meets almost identical what Koenigsegg does. Then I said, okay, well, let me go be the Bugatti fan. Let me go be the devil's advocate and be the Bugatti fan. And if one of our requirements to have a world record is that you have to have 50 state road legal EPA certification. And that helps you with this. I start doing some research and I find out that Koenigsegg applies for EPA certification on a federal level, but not on a 50 state level with the promise to come back and do it. Right. Mm. Now I'm not saying they haven't, but I haven't found the documentation that they have. So they only have federal certification, but they've used um, a, a, a loophole, which is perfectly fine. We're all in business. We all use loopholes. It works. And it's granted by the EPA, but it's an exemption for a small manufacturer. So they don't have to meet the newest EPA standards to get the Koenigsegg Agera RS, its EPA approvals, its, its certificates, right? Yeah. However, if you go to Bugatti and you look up the Veyron and you look at the Chiron, they use the current standards at that time, and they don't use the small manufacturer exemptions to get their certifications. 
So the yeah. question then comes to be, well, if the Veyron met all of the requirements at that time to be a large manufacturer and they meet all of the EPA standards to be a full-fledged, no small car exemption, no limitation of this exemption until 2022, they're just in, right? Should we then say Koenigsegg didn't make the record because they used exemptions that yeah. are not allowed to, to Bugatti? So this starts stair-stepping up to the top, and you have to ask yourself, when does it stop? When do we say all of a sudden, wait a minute, Bugatti is the only person that can ever set a record because they're the only ones that have main dealerships. They're the only ones that have part supplies places. They're the only ones that have all yeah. of this in place. So they're the only ones that can set a production car record. Or do we say, no, wait a minute, Koenigsegg runs around with a hammer and hits their car with a hammer and that's their crash testing. But SSC only uses a balloon when they hit their car. You know, at, at what point do we say, well, Koenigsegg has airbags, but SSC may not have airbags. SSC has OBD2, so does Koenigsegg, so does Bugatti. Where do we find this, this differentiation and draw this line? And I'm really afraid that if we draw it too high, we're going to have nobody competing. You're yeah. going to end up with Koenigsegg racing Koenigsegg because Bugatti said they're out. You're going to have SSC out of the game, and you're going to have Hennessy out of the game because they don't qualify. But if you're, if you're Koenigsegg, you're going to say, my gosh, here we are road testing our car or crash testing our cars. Here we are with airbags. Here we are. Sure. We're using a small car exemption for our cars, but we're, but we're doing a lot more than these other guys are. So we're starting off with only one foot. We don't have, you know, we're, we're limited in what we can do. And so we do have this challenge of finding this level playing field where there is a world market with these different standards and these different gray areas, as you call it. And I unfortunately don't know what the exact answer is. I have had thoughts of saying, well, should I help organize a, a, a board that, that puts this together? And you know what? I don't want that to be my legacy. Uh, this stuff has so much drama behind it. Nobody's ever going to be happy with what you do. And I don't want to be the guy that's, you know, making Koenigsegg mad or making Bugatti mad or making SSC mad because they don't meet a certain standard. And I, I don't think I want to get in the middle of it. And if you look at this whole space, there's so many opinions Right. There's so many opinions behind it. And I, I just don't know if I want to be uh, in, involved in that. I would rather yeah. support each team. I, I would love to go and watch their runs and their tests. And I want to stay out of the opinion side of it because um, because I, I think that what each of these manufacturers do is amazing. But is the SSC to Atara a production car? I think that it could be as long as they build 25 of them. And it's proven that they can be registered. If you have an owner that comes back and says, I could not register my car, I think that that should take away that um, that standard. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it is, like you said, it's such a tricky one. And there is this, this difference between, let's say, like European cars-ish mm -hmm. and American cars and what they need to do to be road legal. Like right. the, some of the guys I know, the Team Gallo guys built a Batmobile. It was right. an American car and that was road legal. <laughs> like in no way, shape or form is should that a be? safe, yeah. should be like, it's a cool no. thing, but like yeah. it didn't pass anything. Um, it's definitely sketchy. But it's so, it is really difficult to how you compare right. these things. And I know one of the exemptions that allows cars to be made, you can use drive, you can drive them on the road is with dealer plates. Right. And, but you can, in America, I'm sort of under, and it, this applies to things like the, um, 
all of the latest bunch of cars that have no roofs. Right. So the Monza and whatever, that sort of stuff. Um, but you can drive those with a dealer plate and you can get dealer plates. Like you can get trade plates. Yeah, you can get trade plates and you can get collector plates in the US. You can get certain exemptions and things like that. But another thing is that we're, the, the whole world is, you know, the whole automotive world or a segment of it talks about all this stuff. A Ford GT, right? Do we think of a Ford GT as a production car? I sure think we should, right? It's built by Ford. It's a car that it's a new car. It goes around the world. But in order to register in the UK, you have to get an exemption. Do you? A Ford GT cannot be registered in the UK under standard practices. It has to have an exemption, right? Good times. <laughs> so th- th- when we start digging into this, because I've yeah, done yeah. that, because I, I literally have gotten so many messages and people saying, Robert, this, that, the other. I don't think a car exists in this segment, you know, that we're talking yeah. that, that I can't find an exemption, uh, that I can't find some sort of exemption on why I don't think it should be able to be considered yeah. A production car if i'm being as hard as everybody is unless it was yeah the only car would be like you said if bugatti yeah full-on made a whatever chiron right production and, car, and, and then they and then everybody talks about the chiron 300 uh oh yeah but that's uh, you know. not well this is it all of a sudden you're like well how much weight came out of the car uh you, you know what i mean is anybody actually buying it you know can you buy it can you buy that exact car and all of a sudden you find out that I don't think that a production car has been over 300 miles an hour yet. No. Right? And I fully... We could all sit here and just go, okay, X, Y, Z, this is not real, this is fake, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. But it is really cool to see people trying. And I, think I so don't too. think any buyers necessarily... Are, no one buying those sorts of cars are being deceived into buying a car or maybe you know they can they, they you should can look be. around and you can right. ask the right opinions and i think most people if you look at let's say one of the american cars you know right. what you're getting yeah you're getting a car with a crazy engine in it that may not be super reliable it may have some issues or whatever but it it, it could on the right day at the right time it should go very very fast and that's I think what so you're buying right if you buy your bugatti product you know you can start it and drive it down the autobahn to work every day at 250 miles an hour and it will do it every day and that's what you expect from it yeah and that's what you expect so ultimately uh, the next one i'm looking forward to seeing appear is the hennessy that's that's got to be the next yeah i think so i think maybe a kind i think the hennessy again i'm just going on what i read and everything like that I suspect that the Hennessy would be the next one to, to, to attempt some speed runs. We'll see uh, how the timelines go. But, you know, I would love to see the Yesco get out from Koenigsegg ASAP Absolutely. as well. Yeah, I, I would I would love to see that. I, I don't know where they're at time-wise in, in production and everything like that or design. But, you know, Koenigsegg did something neat as they did their speed runs toward the end of their production, which I found to be quite respectable. Other companies need to do their speed runs before they sell the cars, <laughs> right? And they, they need to go out. And so I thought that was pretty cool the way that Koenigsegg did it. And I think that the Yesco is going to be an amazing car. Just look and listen to that thing. Uh, so you did cool. a podcast recently where you played it on a runway, yeah. I believe. Um, and the, the, it sounds phenomenal, you know. It does. It sounds it absolutely does. phenomenal. So of, of, of all of these crazy cars, that personally is the one I would have of all of that category of car. Absolutely. That's cool. And, and this is something that Koenigsegg should be proud of, too. You know, we're at a time where SSC is building a car that 
really is aerodynamically capable. When that car goes by it at 280 miles an hour, it is not that loud from the wind noise and everything like that. Um, and, you know, Hennessy's coming with some brute force and, and different things like that. But Koenigsegg is building a car that they can be proud of their road testing and their crash testing and their airbags and their passive safety systems and all these things that they have that they're competing in this space and people still look at them as the car. Yeah. And they should really be proud of that because they're, they're doing what I guarantee you these other companies are also looking up to and saying, man, I want to do that. I want to be in that position. I want to have this name. And, and I think that that's, um, that's something that's really exciting that somebody like you can say, if I could have one of them, it would be the Yesco. You know, if I could, if, if there was any one of them I could have. And, and, uh, that's really what Koenigsegg needs to build their their marketing on and their basis and, and even their enthusiasm on is to say, yeah, you know what? We might have to go run against a car that doesn't go through as stringent of testing as we do, but you know what? We're still going to beat it. Yeah. And we're going to show you that even with our extra levels of complexity, we still can go faster. And I think that yeah. that's, that's where it's at. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's just... Oh. They do prove it. They have historically mm-hmm. proven it where, you know, yeah. every single customer car goes and does a naught to whatever, 300 to naught. Right. Um, with the hands off the wheel before it goes to the customer. Like, yeah. yeah. That's, that's pretty what amazing. You're getting. That's pretty amazing. In the middle of winter. Yep. <laughs> In the snow. <laughs> In the snow. No. Yeah. I think, I think it's pretty amazing what they're doing. And, and like I said, it's, it's neat for all the people in that, in this race, in this space, because, one guy can say, yeah, we're the big guy, but we have to do so much more. The next one can say, we're just a little guy. Yeah. Right. And so they can go back and forth and compete with each other. And, and at least I hope they can, that's what I hope that we see out of it. Um, and, and I hope that none of them take me saying uh, the things that I do as a negative towards them. I'm just trying to bring, would you say informative thought to the whole, to the whole thing. I'm trying to get people out of they're closed-minded, this is my brand, this is my box, yeah. this is who I support, and actually think about all of the complexities that the world uh, faces, not only in, in top speed runs, but politics, you know, how everything is intertwined and how you can't always make the right decision. And, and there's no just clear cut, these people are in, these people are out, you know, it, it's it's really difficult. Yeah. And you can change your opinion. That's mm-hmm. allowed. You yes, can... it is allowed. Absolutely more facts come to light and you can change your opinion. Whereas some people just, just sit there and they grind that, that one thing like, no. And they just say it, they just say it into your face over (laughs) and over again. You're like, you're not listening to what I'm saying. (laughs) Like, no, you're stupid. Like what? Yeah. You You need to look at things. You need to look at things from as many perspectives as you can. Um, I think that's an important part of really everything you do in life, relationships, business, negotiations, whatever it is. You need to, you need to look at it from someone else's perspective. Even if you don't agree with their perspective, you need to think about their life situation, their business Mm. situation, and try and look at it from that angle. And when you do that, uh, it opens your eyes to so much more. And, and that's something that I've really hoped to push through my YouTube channel, you know, is, is explaining that there's other ways to do stuff, you know, and other ways to see things. Um, yeah, we went back to the old Ferrari story of, of, um, the the ferrari with the cat on it um what do they call that nyan cat or something like that where oh yeah yeah yeah. you know and (laughs) and i was talking about ferrari suing or threatening to sue people and i 
explain it from Ferrari's perspective, why they might want to do that, why they might want to protect their brand image. And some people said, wow, I never thought of it that way. You know? Yeah. Now I said at the same time, I wouldn't have gone out and sent (laughs) cease and desist letters to people who bought my four or $500,000 cars. But here's the reason why they might've done it. And people said, wow, thank you for that perspective. Thank you for, I don't, I still don't, I still don't like that they did it, but it's neat to hear why they might've done it. You know? And, and I think that this is what we need to, to do in our lives in the real world at work. When we hate that guy that sits next to us, you know, uh, when we're buying a car, when we're selling a car, when we're just doing our day to day business, if we start thinking more, what, what was this person's motivation? Maybe we're not going to get so fired up over things. You know, maybe we're not going to be so upset by stuff and we're going to find out that, yeah, there's some idiots in the world, but most people are just trying to do what they can do to get by. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the world would be a better place if everyone thinks a bit like that. One of the things before we start to wrap this up, I have been pondering and I thought you might be the perfect person to help me on this, this thought process, a car as no. Okay. So I have two trains of thought on this. A car to use on track more often. Mm-hmm. So every now and then I take the race car out, but that's quite expensive. You have to have the team, slick tires, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Right. So I, when I had, I used to have an M2 as my daily car. I now have an S4 Avant, which is much, it's a much better daily car. But the M2, I could take to the track occasionally just for right. fun. Like, you know, whatever. Have a hoon around. I d- did the brakes just like, you know, what did I do? I did pads, brake hoses, brake lines, fluids. That was about it, really. And it was loads of fun. But I miss having that car to just take to the track occasionally that I didn't care about too much. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't want to smash it up, didn't want to scratch the paint right. or whatever, but, like, wasn't going to be the end of the world. So I was thinking maybe buy something as a track car. This is one avenue. Or I have a 997 Gen 2 GT3 RS, just use the same money or less and maybe insure it and just use that as my track car. That's the the second vein of thought. My thinking with the first one, it it has to be cheap. If if the car is cheap, I will drive it much faster. Like not necessarily on paper faster, but I will push it a lot harder. what What do we consider cheap? Well, see, that's, and then this is where the sliding scale comes in. Yes. Because I, I know what I paid. I paid 95 for my GT3. Right. So that's, 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 this is here. And then it goes, how much would I like to spend on a track car? Yes. And the experience I want out of a track mm-hmm. car. And they start, they st- they, over time, they start to get closer they and get closer. closer and so closer. I've, I've been... I was going to ask you what's on your mind, but I want to say mine first. Go um, for it. Go for it. It's a car that I mentioned earlier, and it's quite simple. It would be a Cayman GTS or something in the Cayman range. Yeah. So now the Cayman, the, 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 depending on what age you get, the, the current generation, they are, went back to the naturally aspirated motor. And in the middle, they had the turbo motor. And I've got the one with the turbo motor in it, so the four-cylinder. Mm-hmm. And... um and to be honest with you, I don't care which one, if it's the, the, the turbo motor or the naturally aspirated one, it doesn't matter. Um, and I might even lean towards the turbo one because it has more torque yeah. and it's actually a fun car to drive. It doesn't have the same emotion. Um, but 
it's a car that you could also drive daily, right? So, yeah. so you can drive it daily, but I think right now I've been talking to somebody else there and, 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 and he said that you can get them in the 40,000 range now, mm-hmm. um, for the same type, like what I have. And the reason I like this car in the sense of it being a track car that you can go have fun with and drive fast is that it's extremely well balanced. The parts for it are very cheap and easy to get, and it's so reliable. There's no problems with it. You can drive it in the rain very fast. You can drive it in the dry very fast, and you can literally throw it around, and it's forgiving. You turn all systems off, and you can let it hang out, but it always comes back. And that's because the weight balance with it being not a rear engine, but a mid-engine car, right? Mm. This is the 911, but with the motor moved forward. You know, it's it's it, it yeah, has yeah. all of that, and that gives that motor position gives it a better front end feel, right? So that's what I was talking about earlier about the front end feel that gives it so much more to where I think the Cayman is actually one of the best cars in this type of segment. I have an M2 and I'd like driving the Cayman more than it. And if I was going to say, I want a budget track car right now that I, and and I know this is uh, relevant and I, uh, to the people who are going to come in and say, that's not a budget track car. I'm sorry. We have to, everything is relative compared to yeah, the fleets yeah, yeah, that we totally. have and the cars we have. For me, if I wanted a car that was in, if we're talking pounds, less than 50,000, I would hands down go with a Cayman GTS. Mm. No, this, so I'm in my head, I'm sort of thinking it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the amount of money question is the, is the yeah. tricky one. Um, and initially I thought maybe something like a GT86. Yeah. Um, I know that if you like someone G- stripped it out, the thing with the GT86 is I have one and I think, you know, I bought it new and I think I paid around 30, I think 33 or 34 for it new, yeah. but to get it to where it's at now, I put another 25 in it. Right. Mm. So the cost That's of those modifications to get it to where it is, I put 25,000 more in it. So with the Cayman, the Cayman is actually, this is what's interesting. It's interesting you mentioned GT86 because I said earlier how much I love the GT86. Mm. I've said at Apex many times that to me, the Cayman is a GT86 with more power. It's got wonderful balance. It's reliable. It's low. It's easy on parts, but it has more power. And if you want to go this route, it has a dual clutch transmission, which also makes for yeah. a very low stress, but fun uh, driver experience. The GT86 is one of my favorite cars to drive, right? If it, I, I have an absolute blast with it. Yeah. Oftentimes if it's not rented, I'm stealing it and just going out and saying, call me when it, when I need to have it back, you know, and I really do enjoy it, but that's even lower in the spectrum, but it only has 200 horsepower. And I find that to be a really good thing. It's one of the things that I praise all the time, but most people find it to be a bad thing. They're like, Oh, I need to put a supercharger on it. I need more power out of this thing. It's a momentum car. It's a car that teaches you how to drive. And it's a car that keeps your, I would say, abilities honed because you can't be lazy with it. Yeah, you yeah, get yeah. into the, you get into these McLarens and Ferraris and a GT2 RS and you go a little slow through the corner. You just put your foot down coming out of it and it, it propels you back forward again. But you get into a GT86 and you'd better be on the limit at corner entry at the apex and you better be on the gas a split second before you needed to be, you know? Because if not, you're going to lose lap time. So yeah, yeah, yeah. if if you said that a GT86 was something you had in mind, I couldn't argue with that. I absolutely could not argue with that because it's it's a phenomenal car. 
if you wanted something that you could also use as a daily type of thing. And that's where I thought this was more going is you could even drive it on the street and enjoy it yeah, in that aspect. This is more like it's it could be used on the mm-hmm. street, but it's a car that will predominantly be used okay. so to my go to G- tracks and So around. my GT eighty six is not a road car. We we've put you know a, a diff in it that's you know locking around the corner pop 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 you know yeah. and um, <laughs> and uh, you know Recaro seats and a half cage and harnesses and all this stuff so you would be annoyed getting in and out of it um, but if if you're only using it at the track then I think it's absolutely phenomenal you'll probably find that by the time you find buy the GT eighty six and and do the mods to it that you'd want to it's probably going to be close to the cost of the Porsche well, but yeah. It's going to be more you, you know, you, you, you've modified it, you've built it. It's, yeah, it's yeah. your, it's your built track car. That is a, that is a good, a good point to bring up though. The, the, once you've done all the mods, which you want to do, you want to, going to want to put like nice mm-hmm. suspension on it and you're going to put on a, probably put a you cage do. in it and do all the stuff. One, selling those things is very difficult. Like you're yeah. not, you're not, you, you're kind of losing a lot of that money unless you trash the car and you literally buy the same car and you put right, it in. Right, exactly. Um, so yeah, your sunk costs are extreme. Whereas with something like the Porsche, you've the got the base, the, you're driving the base level car pretty much. Right. And uh, the beauty of it is that this car is, like I said, you know, the Boxster had kind of a bad name. It was a, it was, you know, the hairdresser I loved car. My, right? I, I had a 981, but, but it was but great. People, people joke about it. You know what I mean? That's, that's oh, what I'm sure. referring to. You're, you know, you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're the hairdressers. They, you know, they gave you a hard time. Absolutely. And, and the, but the Cayman doesn't get that. You know, the no, Cayman is respected. The, the Cayman is a respected car and our Cayman, we didn't even put suspension on it and it's fast. It doesn't have, it doesn't need suspension. It's a car that you could go out and really have fun with as it is and slowly build mm. up a GT86. Forget it. You need to take that thing to the chop shop right away and just, you know, just start taking <laughs> suspension off of it, taking all this stuff out of it to make it a car that you want to drive on track. And it is more difficult to get large money back out of it, you know, because, because of all the mods that you did are, are seen as just whatever. But if you put yeah. a nice suspension on a Porsche, if you decide that's what you wanted, you buy the car already with the race bucket seats, like what the GT3 RS has in it. You don't need anything more in that regard. You know, it, it, it does make for a nice base, but I would say those are two cars that I absolutely cannot argue with. I think they're phenomenal cars and, um, yeah, I guess it's going to come down to what what would what would speak to you, right? Yeah, and then and then it comes down. To, it's also the the other option, which is use my GT3 RS yep. and insure it for track days, which would be significant. I think that would be significantly cheaper than buying pretty much any other car. Okay, you're literally losing losing the money yep. on your insurance or whatever, but it, it could be. I mean, you already have a car that you love. You have a car that you enjoy, right? I don't know and and it's great. <laughs> uh, and so, so with that being the case, if you don't see problems with depreciation, which a lot of people do, if you don't have concern, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, a lot yeah, of people yeah. are, are scared to crash their, 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 the car that they love. Right. Um, I'm the last person to tell you not to do that because I'm taking every McLaren I have for, I have the Porsche on track days and I don't insure them, you know? So, yeah. so uh, I'm not going to tell you worry about, worry about those things. I go Since out and I have fun, uh, go out and have fun with my cars and enjoy them. I truly believe that if you have a car, if we're going to move to option two now and you have a car that you like, why go buy a car to preserve that one? Yeah, I think that's a very strong argument. Mm-hmm. And I'm definitely of that. I think I'm leaning towards that mindset because I love the car, 
every time I drive, like if I drive a Cayman, I'd be like, yeah, but the GT3 RS. This is, is the problem. And nicer. if this is the case, why do you even own it? Why do you even own the 991? If, yeah, exactly. If, if you're always like, I wish I was in that, you know, you might yeah. as well just sell it so that you could say, well, I'm not in it because I sold it. Yeah. 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 I think I've got, I, I need to, I think, I think either I buy something really, 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 really cheap. Like so that would be MX-5. a GT86 then. Oh, or yeah, like well, an okay, MX5 that's really cheap. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like really cheap. A couple cheap. grand. Yeah. Yeah. couple of grand, you know, put a seat in it, whatever, make it a bit safer and then literally drive it until it falls apart or into right. solid objects hopefully not and then use the gt3 rs for fun days like go to travel around see people go to the old track day don't take it too seriously have a hoon around whatever that's also one of the important things about this is if you can find a car that you're not uh, out on track getting in races with people you know for no reason and and you're just out having fun that's something that those cheaper cars can do. That's one of the things I enjoy about the GT86 on the Nurburgring is when I go out, there's no expectation. You know, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, when yeah. you go out in the GT2 or the McLaren, if you are, I'll have, I'll have, I'll do laps with my kids in the passenger seat, you know, at the time four and six, now five and seven. And I'll get back and there'll be a video up. Oh, just push this 675 <laughs> LT around the track. I'm like, dude, look at this. There's a five-year-old in the passenger seat. You yeah, know? yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, so no matter what you do, you're a target uh, in those cars. And sometimes when you, and, and I think that that's part of why I have embraced the GT86 other than it being a great driving experience is that when I go out in it, there's no expectation. Yeah. If somebody passes me, they're like, oh, I just passed a GT86. Cool. If yeah, I yeah. pass somebody, they're like, what the hell? A GT86 just passed me, you know? <laughs> and and I think it's nice. And, and it also lets you just enjoy it in a way that you don't care. Yeah. You know? I think so. There is a lot of fun to be had in driving one of these slower, in inverted right. commas, cars on a track, yes. but faster th- than other cars. And I think that from the two options that you have, I would do a modified option too, and that's where I would run the, the GT3, but I would buy the cheap car because that really yeah, is yeah. probably going to cost less than a weekend's worth of insurance. Exactly. You know, And so you, you do both, and heck, you could take both of them to the track. You could go have a blast out in the GT3 for a couple laps and then jump in the MX-5 or whatever, yeah, yeah. you know, and and, uh, and have some carefree fun at the same time. Yeah, definitely. Right. Well, I normally wrap these podcasts up with five questions. Okay. Okay. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? Oh, my gosh. Do I have a most memorable driving trip or journey? <sighs> nothing, that, nothing that comes to mind, honestly. Um, you know, <laughs> I have... For me, a lot of stuff is based on laps on the Nurburgring. Okay, most memorable and lap. One, well, there's there's two of them. Two two of my most memorable laps. Uh, one with each of my kids. Um, one was with Maximus. He has done over 500 laps on the Nurburgring with me, and they they always act like they don't know where they are. Yeah, but you know that they know every name, uh, every turn on the track. Yeah, and. So Max was, he was, he was seven and we went out for a lap in the Cayman and he starts saying, well, daddy, why do we have to go from the outside to the inside? And why do we break like this? And he started asking me questions and I could tell that something was clicking and I just explained to him why. And he goes, okay, cool. And I said, Maximus, do you know where the car should be? Right. And he said, well, yeah. I said, well, tell me where I should be. And he started on that lap telling me breaking points, turn in points, oh, when to get nice. on the gas. And he was spot on. 
Okay. Yeah. You could, you could have taken that and given it out as a, a video to That's how to drive yeah. the Nurburgring. Yeah. And so, so he, you know, he nailed it and he knew exactly what it was. And another one with him was when we were in our R8. And at this point he would have been, oh gosh, let me think. He would have been three years old and he'd done a lot of laps to this point as well. And we came out of the carousel. So I'm going to give you three laps that are enjoyable to me. He came out of the carousel. Oh, we were, I'm sorry. We were coming out of a, a turn, Brightside up to Bergwerk. And another R8 passed us. And when I looked over, he was in his car seat just sulking. And he was sad. I said, Maximus, what's the matter? He goes, you're letting that R8 get away. <laughs> and it was the saddest thing you could imagine from a three-year-old. So I was like, all right, downshifted. And we didn't have to go crazy to catch him. But we just caught the other car back up. And then we were following it. We go through the carousel. And we're going up out of the carousel. And I started, I, I started to kind of hold back just a little bit because I could see that the car wasn't on the right line. He was, mm. he was driving too far to the inside to make the turn. And, and Maximus noticed I started slowing down. And three-year-old Maximus next to me goes, Daddy, he's not doing it right. <laughs> he said, he's not doing it right. I think he's going to crash. And that's what my three-year-old said to me as we're coming up to a turn. He didn't know how to explain he's in the wrong position. He's not, he's, yeah, yeah. He needs to come from the outside in. He didn't know how to explain that, but he just said he's not doing it right. And sure enough, the car went to turn. There was no turn because he was already on the inside of the turn, and he just understeered right off the track, dirt flying up in the air. And he goes, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> and so those were two really neat experiences for me. And then the other one was with Annalise, my daughter. She was four at the time. And, um, and she had done at this point, 250 laps on the Nürburgring and we went out and we were just having fun laps. And, and, uh, you might know, and my friend Alistair, he came out and he was in his career GT. And, um, so Alistair, we, we went, we did one lap and we came in and it was just coincidence that Alistair comes in front of us in the career GT and we're at the gate getting ready to go do another lap. And Annalise just starts talking and she just does not shut up the whole lap. That's what she does. She's always talking. She's just yapping, yapping, yapping. And one of the most memorable things that I'll, I'll remember that she said to me on a lap was she said, daddy, it just, it sounds like an owl. And she goes, who, who? <laughs> and at that moment it was like, yes, a career GT sounds like an owl, you know? And that video went on YouTube and it, it's, it's done quite well for, for my channel. You know, it's done quite well considering the small audience and, it got started getting posted different places and, and it was grown men saying that moment that a four-year-old girl taught me that a career GT <laughs> sounds like an owl. And everyone just realized that it's true, you know, and it took a four-year-old to, to realize That's that. So funny. <laughs> There's so many things like that where you just need someone that has yep. literally knows nothing about exactly. any of the stuff to just be like, exactly. this is like that. And you're like, oh my God. <laughs> it is, yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Next question. This is probably mm -hmm. going to be a tricky one. Five car garage. And it has, to, oh. it has to fit into your life. So, like, you presumably need a daily. Okay, five-car garage. I would, I think, at the moment, I would say the E30 M3. I really love it. Mm -hmm. It's a car that I think fits fantastically for that nice little, you know, fun jaunt. Um, a Ferrari F40, because it's just a car that I've always enjoyed and I've always loved, but I probably honestly will never own. I don't even have, uh, it's not on my radar right now to buy, mm -hmm. but... I should, and I don't know why I haven't yet, but, um, it, it doesn't, it's, it's that car that, that I think we all looked at as kids in our generations and just loved. We just really enjoyed it. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so those would be those two, a daily driver. Um, 
I would probably go with the GTC4 Luso. I had a FF and I drove it, um, I drove it, uh, 30,000 kilometers in one year. Absolutely loved going. it. Rain, snow, everything. I, I thoroughly, uh, just had an absolute blast with it. Um, so that covers a daily driver, uh, just a fun kind of like little, I wanted to have this car. I think yeah. it's a cool car. Uh, E30, which would be a great little Sunday, go out and have some fun with the family type of thing. And then I would take my T6 van. Um, and that's, you know, maybe not people's first choice. And, and some people joke, like, especially in America, because in America, minivans are like the, like, you know, yeah, most ridiculous thing you can drive. Yeah. And so a lot of people in the U.S. see, see a T6 van as a minivan, but we all know it's not, um, you know, they're very practical. And that's because I can take my bikes in it. You know, we fit uh, four bikes in the back and our entire family of four. Mm. So we're able to put the bikes in the back. I don't get to where we're going with mud and dirt and bugs all over the bikes because they're up on the roof or, you know, diesel exhaust cycling around the yeah. back of the, of the car all over them. So the T6 has been very practical. Um, in two years right now, I've owned it. I've got 90,000 kilometers on it. So we drive <laughs> that thing back and forth to Italy constantly up to Apex all, all the time. And it's always full of stuff. It's moved, you know, slowly house loads of stuff yeah, from yeah. Germany to Italy to here to there. And, and so, so it's a car that I would say is actually quite practical. So I guess that makes the, it makes, makes the, the, five. The, the five car garage. And then that leaves me with a track car because we, we need that, yeah. we need that all out Nürburgring track car. I, I have to say it, it, that since you're limited to a five car garage, that means you're probably limited to a budget and, um, you want to keep unlimited. things. It's unlimited budget. Well, I meant more for driving it on the track, you know. Okay. Well, um, you can drive it. It could be an F1 car if you wanted. Yeah, Formula One car. No, I think the GT2 RSMR. I think so. And mm. and it's, again, the practical guy's choice, right? Um, it's reliable. It's fast. It's maybe it doesn't have all of the front end, you know. Maybe it doesn't have, um, uh, you know, the feedback that the McLaren gets me, but I know that it's going to work when I need it to work. Yeah. And I know that if I need to get it fixed, I can get it fixed immediately with, you know, Monte Racing Porsche Center yeah, right yeah. there and all these different things. So I think that that leaves me with one solid track car, one practical family run around Europe type of car, a daily driver that I can take to the office, a cool little, would you call it dream car type of thing that you can look at and appreciate yeah. out of the F40. And then a, a, a beautiful, classic, um, fun driver's car that you can mm. take out on the weekend on a sunny day in the M3. I think that's a good selection. Are you looking forward to the new GT3? The new GT3, I think I, I, I'm always I, I'm always looking forward to new cars. I think they're it's really exciting when something new comes out. Um, I think that it's going to have a double wishbone suspension on the front for the first yeah. time ever, and that might give us some of this feel or feedback that we want uh, out of the front end. We'll see. Um, and you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, I don't like the Swan Neck Wing," but that's that's just where race cars are going now. That's the direction yeah, yeah. it's going. They do it because it's better, you know. So. Yeah, I think it's going to be a fantastic car. I don't, I, I won't get the GT3. Um, I maybe I'll get a GT3 RS, but but I'm not sure. Yeah, we'll see. I don't, I think GT3. I don't know what the rumors are of when that's going to come out, but yeah, I think we'll probably be a while to be getting. An RS. I think we still got a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. So like I said, I I don't I don't see getting a GT3 because it doesn't have. I think they're beautiful cars. The GT3 has always been one of the prettiest Porsches, in my opinion. Just. It has that wing, but it's not, you know, aggressive. So it's got a very pretty balance to it. Um, but uh, I've, it's not something that I've been finding that has a great position in, in my use of cars. But um, 
the GT3 RS very well could be because, you know, I would want a more performance oriented car. And yeah. I think that the GT3 RS, when it comes to 992, is going to be the ultimate car. It's going to be a monster. Yeah, I think so. Right. If you could only drive one car for the rest of your life and you're allowed a 500 pound banger on the side, <laughs> probably in your T6. <laughs> Yeah, just wait long enough. The T6 will be 500 euro, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another year of driving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can I can I do this in three years after I've got a million million miles on it, right? Um, if you could only drive one car, well, this has to be this. this And, and everybody is already going to give me a hard time because I said the GT2 and the last five car thing because they know I'm a Porsche guy. They know I love Ferrari. They know I love this stuff. But I would have to, so I've got, I've got the, some 500 pound or dollar thing. euro, whatever thing. Yeah. Um, you know, that's why I can get my family around in. Right. Cause, yeah. uh, you know, nice um, so that my Fiat multiplo, right. Yeah. Um, the, the one car that I would drive would have to be the GT2. And okay. it's funny because I'm not the Porsche guy, right. I'm not, I'm not, yeah, apparently. I'm not the Porsche fanboy. I'm not, I'm saying that they look the same. I, I, I wish there was, you know, something in the 918 realm that wasn't natural, that wasn't hybrid, that was, you know, brought down in the oh. maybe 500,000 range. It would be amazing, right? You and the rest. Um, what's that? You and the rest, like that elusive yeah. supercar that never exactly. appeared. Exactly. It's basically the modern career GT, right? Yeah. So something like that. Um, but the reason I would take the GT2 is that I told you earlier that I did that 2000 kilometer road trip in the GT2 RS and I loved it. It was comfortable. You could use voice calls on Bluetooth. You could do all this stuff. I didn't change the alignment. I was literally driving the fastest car on the Nürburgring on the exact same alignment on a 2,000-kilometer round trip to Italy, Cinque Terre, and back. So, and it was great. It was great. It was fantastic. It wasn't tracking. It wasn't uncomfortable. My, I didn't have a headache when I got there because it was, it was out of control. So, yes, if I... Now, it has to be with the MR kit, though. It has to be GT2 RS with the Monte yeah. Racing kit. Yeah, so that would be it. So why... Okay, why do manufacturers, and this is just makes, I think most, most people shake their heads, make sports cars, supercars, track-focused cars mm-hmm. that ride pretty shitty? Because the MR is quite compliant. Yes. has proved that you don't have to, like, it's not faster to make a car bone-shaking. Yeah, I mean... I think that a lot of manufacturers are trying to find their way and, and, and trying to figure out what, how, how to build these cars. And um, I don't have a ton of examples of, of track cars that ride completely horrendous. Um, I think that the, the 675 LT, you know, they've got the three-way adjustable thing where you yeah. can go medium sport hard. And I think that people have said that McLaren actually has one of the best adaptive suspensions that's out there. Um, the same thing today, the Pista rides reasonably okay but the difference is and this is where it's interesting the difference is is they might ride okay on the street but they don't perform as well anywhere near as well as gt2 does on the track right so they have this area where they're okay on the street i'm not saying great they're okay but they fall so short of the mr on the track yeah where the mr is okay on the street but it just blows them away on the track. Right. Yeah. And I think what's happening is that these manufacturers are getting too caught up in this adaptive suspension. They're getting too caught up in these multiple levels and none of the levels are actually good enough for what they're supposed to be doing. And I think if they would take their time and find a way to go right to 
their audience and say, this is what we've designed because this is what the car is built for. It would take away from this kind of okay floating around position that they're in. You know, um, I felt that the GT2 on the road trip was as comfortable, if not more comfortable than the 675 LT. And I definitely felt that it was more comfortable than the Pista. Mm. Right. So why are manufacturers doing that? I just think that it literally has to do with them being caught in, in between worlds and trying to please everybody when they, they clearly can't. Yeah. And like so many of these cars, they'll have like a track setting that's super stiff, like really quite stiff that you possibly may not use on the track. But then the other setting is like, I don't know, 10% down from that. (laughs) Yep. And and (laughs) And you're like, I I want it to ride like an S class when I'm not on track. Exactly. For example, you've got the, uh, the 675 LT. I use that a lot with this adaptive suspension. And we talk about how great it is in many areas. But on the track, when you put it in the stiffest mode, you go around certain turns on the front end skips, right? Mm. And so it's it's actually not it's not damping correctly. It's it's got incorrect rebound. It's not it's not making as much contact as it possibly could. But if you go to the softer one, then you start getting too much body roll, and it, they just don't have the, these cars with these adaptive suspensions. I just don't feel are tuned to the way that that we want to drive them yet. Uh, they're going to get there. You're going to start feeling things as these adaptive suspensions get good that traditional drivers that like something like what the GT2 has, which is a three and four way adjustable suspension, those all of a sudden are going to start feeling weird because you're going to, let's say you're going to go into a turn and it's noticing that you're understeering and it's going to lift up on that tire and push down on the other one. And like all of a sudden, you know, it's going to, it's going to do all these weird things and, uh, you know. Uh, that's going to start feeling very weird to us as drivers, but I think it's going to help. But the technology just needs a little bit more uh, to catch up, I would say. And I, I know of behind the scenes some companies that are doing some really cool stuff with this adaptive suspension that's going to change how we want to drive a car. Uh, us traditional drivers are going to hate it for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's weird when you get a car. So I what's the drive Bentley Continental GT yep. V8. Um, and it has all these motors in it to keep it level. Right. <laughs> and the, the motors weigh like, I don't know, 300 kilos or something ridiculous. <laughs> but like you drive it down a road and it just kind of like doesn't really roll. Like at right, all. Absolutely. And absolutely. I sort of respect it for what it can do. But then equally, I'm, I think a lot of people get really put off by the idea of a car rolling at all, like at mm-hmm. all. And I quite, I personally quite like a bit of roll because you can tell I, what the hell is going on everywhere. I, I think a bit of roll is important, you know, in, in, in the rain, when we drive on the Nürburgring in mm. the rain, I love a car that rolls. You, you roll over, you feel the weight transferring, you know what everything is doing. You get a car that's completely flat and you just, you start sliding. You don't, you don't, you yeah. don't get the same weight transfers and at least the same feeling when it's transferring. And, and, and I, I definitely like a little bit of roll in a car and I don't, I don't think that's a terrible thing. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Looks bad in a picture, but. <laughs> Most undervalued car at the moment. Ooh. GT86, I think. You there know, you go. I, I think it's very, uh, you know, it's very undervalued in the sense of so many people don't appreciate the fact that it only has 200 horsepower. Right. I hear it only has 200 horsepower and I say, and that's why I love it. You know, um, so I think the GT86 is a very undervalued car, maybe not even financially, but just as a, an opinion standpoint. Mm. 
Uh, so many people don't give it the credit that I think it deserves uh, for what the platform can bring you as a driver. And so, yeah, I, w- I would have to go with that. And the other, the next under, most undervalued car is a 675 LT, and that's because I have two of them and I need those numbers up. <laughs> they need to go back up. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see the, oh, who was it? Like, uh, someone put a 765 on a dyno. Mate, eight, yeah, same guy, Brooks. He's one of my buddies in yeah. Florida. He, he's, it was like he, 865. Yeah, it's, it's insane. It made 880 horsepower. It's nuts, huh? But this is, this is also just ridiculous from McLaren that we need to produce cars now that make 120 horsepower more than claimed. I mean, come on. What's you know, the point? Where do you go from here? You know, we, it's, it makes more power than a Senna. So when yeah. it lines up to a Senna and, and a Senna comes up to me on the freeway and I you know, blow its doors off, uh, how, do, how does that work? You know, yeah. That the thing makes 765. The Pista already can't touch it. The STO, I'm sorry, it's a naturally aspirated V10. It's not even going to come close. Even with 765 horsepower, there was no reason to make this car have so much power. No. Other than maybe they just like, well, we could, so we did. (laughs) Yeah, but it just just shoots you in the foot because you know they're going to use the same motor for the next 40 years and put it in 300 more cars, you know? And and they will try, and they do try, and sell significantly more expensive cars. Right. And it used to be you had to pay a million pounds to get get, the, the crazy, whatever that was. And maybe at one point that had a V12 in it. Right, absolutely. But now they don't have, the, they have the same engine. Like they it do. sounds the same. Well, this is, this, this is it. I mean, the P1 to the 570S. Yeah. The Senna to a McLaren GT. It's quite a broad range of cars that are running the same motor. Um, you know, we can even do this. We're not, we don't just need to be pick on McLaren time because I think everyone knows that I am a pretty good McLaren fan, but we can look at it from, from the Ferrari range as well. You know, the, at least they have their V12s, you know, yeah. at least they have their V12s, but you know, from the 488 to the F8 to this, to that, to the other with the same, the same motor. And it, 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 I don't know, I guess if it was the same motor that was something like what's in the Speciale, we might be, we might love it a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. I think, well, we will see in the next iteration of cars coming up, we, un, I think, unfortunately, but we'll see, we'll see what they're like. All of the, lots of these manufacturers are going to turn to sort of V6 hybrids. Yeah, so and you know what? A- what I find unfortunate about that is that I think that this moment where we have to go hybrid would be a fantastic time to go back to some small naturally aspirated motors. A hundred percent. You know, if you told me I'm getting a small naturally aspirated, maybe V8 or heck, a six cylinder, listen to the GT3 RS. Has anybody ever complained to you that a 991 GT3 S does yeah. not sound good? Exactly. They sound amazing. Yeah. Put some hybrid packs in that. Exactly. Put a battery. And now we have something that maybe meets your economy uh, requirements, but also gets us some emotion. I, you know what? I thought all of those cars, like when I heard that Ferrari were going to a V6 mm-hmm. and we knew it was going to be a hybrid and then a couple of other people, whatever, doing the same thing. I um, instantly, I thought it's just going to be a V6 or a 6 or something. Right with hybrid like yeah. a naturally aspirated engine and that is super appealing like you could make it rev to nine it you can make it sound good sound amazing yeah. and you'll get the power and yeah. a bit more of all the stuff and talk fill and whatever that would be great but they're turbocharged what and that's what that's what's disappointing to me because i would be all over that and i think that we're at a point with cars where we're in this horsepower race that's completely unnecessary um on one of the forums last night somebody was comparing 
uh, or two days ago comparing the 765 or actually it was just basically that an F8 Tributo is better than any McLaren. It was just some broad statement, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And everybody came in just blasting him and saying, oh, you know, but the McLaren's faster, it has more performance and faster on the track, faster in a drag race. And, you know, I need, I need the fastest car, blah, blah, blah. And I just went in and I wrote, I said, I really want to know what percentage of you guys who are touting performance figures actually get to extract those performance figures out of your car. And I got some great responses. Not me. Nope, not me, not me. (laughs) You know, so it really just comes down to bragging rights, you know? Yeah. And I think that we're at the point where these cars are so incredibly fast that most people who are driving them could not even hope to extract the performance out of them. There, there's no way, you no. know? And, and so let's take this back to maybe a 400 horsepower natural aspirated motor that sounds amazing. Heck, make it 350. I don't care. Make the car even lighter. Make it as light as you can. Yeah. Put just 350 horsepower in it and give me 200 horsepower worth of batteries, yeah. you know, and or 300 horsepower worth of batteries. And all of a sudden you might have something that's exciting that somebody will buy and drive because it's actually really damn cool. That is super exciting to me. If mm-hmm. they could, someone makes a light, and I mean light, like 500-ish horsepower car that revs really high. Yeah. And an option of three pedals would be nice as well. Do you know that the one thing, um, I, I went on a tour of the Dallara factory in, in Italy, right? Mm. And it's actually really cool. They're only an hour and a half from my house in Italy. So it was, it was neat to see how close they were. But I went yeah, and yeah. I, drove the, I drove the Dallara Stradale, right? Mm. And it was an amazing car, and it was a lot of fun. It was lightweight. It was nimble. It was a blast. The only thing I wish it had was a natural aspirated motor. If it had yeah. a natural aspirated motor, I believe that I would be driving one right now. And I still have that car in the back of my mind because it, it meets so many of the boxes being small, lightweight, nimble, yeah, fun. Yeah. You know what I mean? But there, if it had a natural aspirated motor, I'd probably be hard to keep it out of the garage because it, it, it really is something cool. And I think that that's where a lot of us want to go is, one, you know, sound isn't everything, but you know what? It almost makes up more. I almost enjoy emotion more than I do just all out speed. Yeah. And you can't use the all out speed. No, you can't. And, and there's so much of the time. So the sound yeah. is bloody important the rest of the time. And another thing that a lot of people don't realize is the all out speed makes you a worse driver on the track. Uh, better drivers come from slower cars, in my opinion. And then they obviously build up to the power, yeah. but a, a better driver comes from a slower car. You obviously have the freak occasionally that just can drive anything and, you know, he just jumps in it. But for the most part, we learn how to drive in slow cars and the high powered cars make us complacent. And, and uh, you know, when you go to those track days, it's a big thing in the U.S. that you got the S2000s and the MX-5s and all this stuff out battling with the big guys, you know, in their supercars. Yeah. And they, the, the little cars on 205 profile tires are out cornering a supercar, you know? Yeah. And that's because it's honing better drivers. It's creating better drivers that can find the limit and stick to it. If those guys got in one of those McLarens and got used to the power, they'd be fast. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know? And that, yeah, it's, I mean, I've talked about it a lot. You talk about it all the time. Driving a slow car, you have so much more time to work out how to get faster. Like you're going around the corner for like three seconds <laughs> rather than one. And you're more motivated to because after you mess up in the corner, yeah, you're cursing yourself for the next 30 seconds while you're waiting for your power to, you know, get you <laughs> to the next turn. Up, you're like, yeah. oh my gosh, you think I just made a mistake. I, I was late apex, early apex. I wasn't on the throttle fast enough. I screwed up too much. But you have time to think about that. And the high powered car, 
you're out of the turn after you messed up and you're like back on it with the tires just gripping and you know all this stuff and you're just making the same mistake in the next corner so with a low power car you actually get time to correct yourself and learn what you're doing as well yeah absolutely all right final question yep what's the most interesting car to you at the moment new old or what just just like what are you looking at googling Hmm. forefront of your mind in terms of cars okay so this is you know, I, I have a lot of cars. We didn't even get to finish answering that question. You know, we went through some <laughs> of the BMWs. Uh, so I've got many other supercars and things like that. Um, in my fleet right now, the most exciting car to me is the E30 M3. That's mm-hmm. the car that I'm the most excited about. Um, I'm going to do the least amount of track time with it, but I'm, I'm <laughs> most looking forward to the weather, the weather clearing up, and I, I can't wait to drive it. So that would be in the cars that, that belong yeah. to me, you know, standpoint. If you want to go the ultimate hypercar excitement thing, I think the Yesco is a really cool car. That's something that when I see it, I love the look of it. Uh, I love the style of it. Um, so that that to me is a, is, a, is a fantastic car. But hmm, I don't lust after a lot of cars. You know, I don't do a lot of mm. internet searching and, and, and researching things. But if I could have, let's just put it this way. If I could have any car right now, um, no cost, no have to justify that I wanted yep. it. Um, and, and it's funny cause I'm not a huge Koenigsegg fan, but I've mentioned them twice just now. It, it would be the, how do you, how do you say it? The Gamera? Is that, is that yeah, how you pronounce something it? Something like that. I'm not a hundred percent sure how you say it. Gamera, 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 Gamera. They're going to be like, Oh yeah, you call it Jesco, Yesco, Gamera, Gamera. Um, I would say that would probably be it. Honestly, I think that it, after I think about it for a minute, mm. you know, that would probably be the ultimate car because it could be a really cool family car. Yep. It's got an amazing look. That's one of the most beautiful cars that I've seen in a long Sick. time. And so I, I like how the doors go up, but it opens up to four seats, you know? Yeah. Um, so I would say probably, I don't research it a lot. I don't do a lot of internet daydreaming. I haven't even followed the hashtag Jamera yeah. Gamera on, on Instagram yet. But I think that's probably, I would have to say what I think is one of the hottest cars uh, out or coming. Uh, I think I think it's going to be a phenomenal car. Yeah. When that was launched whenever that was, Geneva, not Geneva, this year, last year, that it stood out for me head and shoulders above anything of right. that sort of category that anyone has brought out in a while. Like, yeah, the Yes goes mad and really cool, but it's kind of similar to the stuff that's comes before, whereas exactly. that car, the Jumeirah, this is, is new. just... Yeah. And the tech in it, the way they've done it, the new engine, like all this, all the stuff, it's like a thousand kilometer range. You're like, what yeah. the hell? I think that's probably answers the, the question the best I can. I think it's an amazing car. I yeah, think it's got cool. a look, a feel to it. it it's going to be a car that makes a statement, you know? Um, and I think they, and I, and I, I actually give them a lot of credit for building that car. Totally. You know, that that's a car that could have completely flopped, but they went for it. And I think you've got a lot of people that, that would want it. And if I was, I tend to not buy cars in that, in that range, you know, because I tend to want to use my cars. I tend to want to take them 90,000 kilometers in, in two years and, <laughs> yeah, or you know, a thousand laps on the Nürburgring and everything like that. So that that's what kept me away from the Senna. That's what's kept me away from a lot of different things, but that's the one car that I've had. Okay. Should I just do it? You know, because it's really damn cool. <laughs> you know? It is. I yep. can't wait for the first time. I, I see one uh, hopefully driving down a street or something. Just be like, wow. Yeah, cool. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. 
it's We've been an absolute... a solid, solid oh. amount of time. How long? Too we're, much? Well, I think we're we're clocking up to about three hours. Oh my goodness! Wow. Uh, from from me starting the recording to now, so we had a little <laughs> well, bit anybody, of a break in the middle. If anybody made it this far, we got to give them. They're, they're tier one, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's and been great. Uh, definitely, definitely look to, to, to round two since we ran out of time today. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Exactly. Everything's expiring. <laughs> right on, man. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope that your audience enjoyed a little bit of our rambling. Huh? I think they, they will. They will. They will. Cool. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.